You're listening to Astroscope, astrology podcast by Mark Lerner and Great Bear Enterprises. This podcast is sponsored by Buzzword Consulting and Forfame.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our 44th podcast. Since I began this podcast series in Mark Lerner Astrology Radio Astroscope on our Great Bear Enterprises website. I have an immense amount of information to get to you. This is fundamentally also the eighth part of the coronavirus series, but it's 44th podcast overall. So what we did the last time, uh, let me just say this, tonight is Monday night, April 13, 2020. We've just had the annual sun Eris conjunction at 23 to 24 degrees of Aries. I shared about the power of Aries, particularly, which is in our Earth Aquarius news section on Great Bear Enterprises, concerning the president's hope, which was a couple of weeks ago, that on Easter he was hoping that we would have the churches filled, and that was quickly dashed. Um, by the science advisors and now of course we know why because of the increasing rates of cases and deaths in the united states and around the world that it's not an appropriate time at all with all the lack of testing with all the question marks uh, about the hospitals and about the different curves in the different states uh, there is no way that anything could happen on easter so so many people did things through zoom and through praying at home and sending well wishes to their loved ones around uh, the country and around the world in alternative ways than necessarily gathering together, which again, we all know is the smart move at this, this time, what's called social distancing or physical distancing. However, um, in that Earth Aquarius news section at greatbearenterprises.com, I was able to, um, it seems like weeks ago, but it was actually maybe 10 days ago, we posted um, the, the couple of entries of Easter weekend in our cosmic calendar, which I've been doing for the last 39 years. And I had written uh, 10 days before the president came up with his uh, suggestions. And then when I read through it again, I realized, oh, oh my God, we're going to have the annual sun Eris conjunction. Uh, Easter night into the morning of today, which is Monday, uh, April 13th. By the way, these terrible storms that have hit are are connected to the Sun-Aries conjunction, also always connected to something I'll share more about later. Juno is kind of alone and retrograde in Libra in, the, in terms of the entire sky at the moment, in terms of the major alignments. We have an unusual situation. It's not happening all the time, but right at the moment where the moon is in Capricorn tonight um, and we have all the main planetary bodies, including the sun, moon, the eight main planets, the four main asteroids, Chiron, they're all bunched together within about 150 degrees of the zodiac between Capricorn and Gemini. And then by itself, Juno retrograde in Libra, which is a sign that Juno doesn't necessarily rule because traditionally Venus is the ruling planet of Libra. But Juno, in terms of one of the four main asteroids, definitely connects up to that sign. And one of my uh, main teachers that I've shared so much about, Eleanor Bach, uh, particularly shared in her work on Monday in astrology and the asteroids that Juno, when negative, 
Okay, and Juno has a lot of positive qualities concerning peace and harmony and beauty and balance and equilibrium in society and all kinds of connections on the higher level between management and labor in terms of business and so on. And everything that should be more um, civic responsibilities and calmness in society. But when Juno is negative, there's often extreme um, disempowerment in the atmosphere, storms. So she can be a goddess of storms. And what we saw um, last night and this morning in the south and moving up through the southeast and into today along the east coast, uh, again, uh, many healing blessings going out to those different states and those people affected by tornadoes and um, terrible thunderstorms and flash floods and so on. And this is only the beginning of that kind of season when we need to be socially distancing, uh, continuing quite a bit into the future and physical distancing. And yet last night and this morning, all kinds of people are having to huddle in shelters, uh, the exact opposite of this kind of situation where their homes are literally destroyed uh, and many of you may have seen so, so many of those pictures. So we're just at the beginning of that kind of season in the United States, which will go on for months with tornadoes and hurricanes and so on. And that's going to be another big crisis for everyone, whether it's FEMA and all the governors and the mayors and the people themselves living in these areas. So um, tonight is an unusual situation. Right now, the sun and moon are in a waning con configuration 99 degrees separating the moon in Capricorn and the sun, and the moon is approaching all those planets that many of us have been writing about as astrologers, Jupiter and Pluto, which are in Capricorn. Temporarily, um, we have Saturn and, and Mars have moved out of there. Saturn will eventually uh, come back from Aquarius in May, and it will retrograde and go back into Capricorn. Um, so we have this tremendous influence, at least where I am in Oregon, as I share tonight with Scorpio rising, many planets in the third house, which is a house having a lot to do with communication and correspondence, but fundamentally with primary education. And I've always felt that my work in the field of astrology over 47 years, going back to 19, it's really 48 years, 1972, 1973 in New York City, where I began, so much of my focus is on journalism and on reporting and on education, as we did in Welcome to Planet Earth, the pioneering astrology newspaper magazine for 20 years. I wish that in many ways it was still going strong so you could read all the wonderful writers and astrologers who contributed during the 1980s and 90s. Um, but periodically, as I've already shared in some of the podcasts, I will continue to go back to some of the issues. Um, there are so many of them on esoteric astrology, on the seven rays, there were a couple of uh, extraordinary magazines, one of which um, the word good was on the cover of Welcome Planet Earth because Time Magazine or Newsweek wrote a whole cover story about evil, um, whether it really exists or not. And I found it to be very upsetting that they did a whole thing on evil. So I immediately came out with a magazine called Good um, and whether it exists and tapping into so many things, as I've shared with many of you before, the work. Um, in the Arcane School, lucistrust.org, L-U-C-I-S-T-R-U-S-T.org, and their fabulous website, and all the Tibetan Master DK, Alice Bailey books, and many of the free materials on their website about the three spiritual festivals, one of which we just had, which was the Shambhala Aries 
full moon, which just occurred um, several days ago. And then next month, we will have the Buddha Waysak full moon, which is the full moon every year with the sun in Taurus and the moon in Scorpio. And then that will be followed by the World Invocation Day or Festival of the Christ, which is when the sun is in Gemini and the moon is in Sagittarius. And every year, these three spiritual festivals, as they're known in esoteric circles and in many spiritual groups and communities around the planet, they're the high full moons of the year and they have a special significance. So please uh, consider going to lucistrust.org free materials, as well as all kinds of fascinating, illuminating articles about the seven rays, esoteric psychology, esoteric astrology, esoteric healing, um, all kinds of extraordinary books and materials. So um, tonight is very special. I'm trying to catch up with so much. If you could just see where I'm at here, I laugh because on my desk, at my feet and behind me, are piles of post-it notes and papers and books because I have a lot of friends, I have a lot of loved ones who I talk to and they say, I ask them, you know, are you watching the press cons conferences? Did you watch, as an example, Richard Engel? Um, this is going to be a free-for-all session and it's not going to be the short one that I hope for, the Hemingway version of The Old Man in the Sea. That will come later. Uh, last night, a fantastic show on MSNBC. And if some of you thinking, oh, Mark Lerner, Deep State, he's on the progressive left, as I've shared before, I download stories left, right, and center um, from what's called Smart News. It's my main place that I go to. There are stories from all kinds of magazines and news sources, some of which I never knew existed. And so my job, and I've been doing this since the days of Walter Cronkite, and being a kid. And if you go to the some of the podcasts, you'll see I put on the cover of the World Almanac and Book of Facts from 2020, a, a book that my dad, my, my father, who was the doctor, would get every year and back in the 1950s and 60s. And that's how I learned all about history and numbers and statistics. I've already shared that story. So go back a few podcasts in the area where we have the charts and in some cases the cover of Welcome to Planet Earth. Um, they're all in a section that my daughter created for each of these podcasts. They all have some kind of charts and this session will also have at least four charts, possibly more by the time I'm done. Okay, so fundamentally if you could see what is going on here, the last main podcast I did was a week ago. But after that one, and that podcast was 41. Just I'm going to try and get us to where we are right now and then fly through all of this material to the best of my ability. So the last podcast was Friday night, um, April 3rd. And that was the day of a powerful Mercury-Neptune union in Pisces with another potent union of Jupiter, Pluto, and Capricorn that would be happening the next day. So we're only... Uh, um, nine days from that particular point. So in that particular uh, podcast, I called it Coronavirus Part 7 and New Astrological Discoveries. And I included this discovery chart of Neptune on September 23rd, 1846, the horoscope for the start of the Spanish influenza pandemic on March 11, 1918, the horoscope of the World Trade Center underground bombing on February 26, 1993, 
the chart for the World Trade Center disaster on September 11, 2001, the chart for the state of New York, every state has a chart, I've explained that before, for when it entered the Union, often, well, in, in most cases, uh, after Pre President Washington took the oath, it would be whenever the President of the United States would, would sign the statement, the official document, that such and such a state is now part of the Union. So we did the chart, or I presented the chart for the state of New York because of the disaster going on, it's still going on, particularly in New York City, for the various reasons I've explained in the last couple of podcasts. Um, that state chart of New York happened July 26, 1788, and then the horoscope for the public opening of the New York City subway system on October 27th of 1904. And by the way, that followed podcast 40, where other charts about the discovery of Sedna and Eris and Chiron were presented. And that's podcast 40. So let me also remind everyone that the, the keynotes that I'm using, and I've whittled them down, it's not that the these outer planets have only one keynote. I've said before, there are many positive keynotes, many negative keynotes. Everything depends on whether a person or a state of the union, or a community, or a nation, or the planet, or the leaders of a country are utilizing the energies favorably or not. So with Sedna, I am using the keynote of frozen. I'm not going to explain all the reasons why, but because we're frozen in place, the discovery chart of Sedna and its power and the various charts, if you look at the word frozen and utilize the word frozen, that is a key energy with Sedna. Again, it's a goddess energy of a planet that's far away. It has extraordinary other energies, some of which are very positive. But at this particular time, that energy, um, a word is important because we hear that those phrases by leaders and by so many people in the medical establishment, and they will use the word frozen or we're in a deep freeze, um, that kind of thing. Eris, the word is war, because of the shadow side of that particular planetary body far out in space, twice as far away as Pluto is, dis discovered in 2005 in January. Sedna was discovered in November of 2003. And the word with Eris has to do with war. This whole war against an invisible enemy, not necessarily America versus Iran or, or America versus Vietnam or any of the other battles that have taken place in the last hundred plus years or throughout history of one nation versus another, or within the civil wars in the United States, uh, in China. People don't always remember, unless you study your Chinese history, the extraordinary battles between Mao and Chiang Kai-shek um, in the 1930s and 40s that led to the People's Republic of China. And the leaving of Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist Chinese to, at that point, what was called the island of Formosa, which we now refer to Taiwan. There's just an extraordinary history there of that civil war. Of course, the Russian Revolution. Um, that whole situation in at the end of World War II, or not, not even at the end, but in 1917, before that war ended, World War I, in 1918, the Russian Revolution, and the different variations of that revolution. Um, that occurred. Um, so we have all kinds of civil wars. We have all kinds of wars between nations. At the moment, because of one of the archetypes relating to Eris, uh, which is as the sister of Mars, this planet far out in space, she was the catalyst for the Trojan War. 
and you can read about that mythology. But the point is, is that Eris has an enormous amount to do with catalytic experiences that are far away from our consciousness, because that's the other thing about planets that are far away, Sedna, Eris, and many of the others, Haumeo, uh, Makimaki, so many of these other uh, planets that have been discovered, many of which um, are not, I've not talked about yet, but at some point in the future I might, and other astrologers are, are looking into all of those and reporting about their meanings. But with Eris, um, the whole idea of being at war, um, we now have that going on. And the other one with Chiron, which has so many different meanings having to do with the wounded healer and shamans and mentors and keys that open doors to higher consciousness and on and on. But at the same time, the Twilight Zone connection, I've shared this before. You can go back to the other podcast. So when I refer in a chart to Sedna, Eris, Chiron, and when you read and think about some of the things I'm bringing up and what other astrologers might talk about those particular planets, realize that the, the concept of situations being frozen is very connected to Sedna, the war against this particular virus and the other viruses. Right now, I have downloaded so many stories about the locusts that are in East, it's not just East Africa anymore, but this is another horrendous thing. And I've downloaded several stories. And because of everything about the coronavirus and are all sheltering in place or uh, so social distancing and physical distancing and watching all these scenes taking place in different parts of the United States and all these stories, a lot of the dire situations that are happening elsewhere are not necessarily being reported. But there is an extraordinary, horrific situation about locusts in various countries like Kenya and Ethiopia and the whole area of East Africa, which can affect Saudi Arabia and Yemen and even Iran. And of course, Iran has been struggling uh, tremendously, uh, aside from all of our constraints on that society through the Trump-Pence administration the last couple of years of backing out from the nuclear agreement um, and all the uh, prevention of different supplies at the same time, they are suffering tremendously with many of the deaths, I mean, the very high death uh, uh, numbers of, that have been affecting them, as we've heard with countries like Italy and France, and now, of course, the United Kingdom is way up there. And even Germany, where so much um, good energy began in trying to um, restrict the, the problems of the, the coronavirus and prevent its spread, they have tremendously high numbers. And we see all these lists and it's very terrifying and that's why a lot of people don't want to know about what's going on or their people just don't want to hear depressing news for me as a reporter as a journalist going back 50 plus years um i thrive on this because i it's part of my work to try and sort through all of this but it isn't an easy job as well because i'm having a lot of revelations which we'll get to later that's part of the reason this will be longer i want to actually share Oh, probably a dozen podcast ideas before we're done that that other astrologers are welcome to start exploring. And I will do these podcasts um, down the road, but I want to get the ideas out now because, again, if you could see what's going on here, piles of books and papers and all kinds of post-it notes and other notes where I'm scribbling down insights because we've never had a situation um, report-wise of the news and um, the press conferences, Washington, and having a situation with 24 seven 
reporting, particularly dealing with a pandemic of this order. So for myself at this particular point, um, and having done podcasts now since May of last year, trying to put all this in some sense in order is not the easiest thing. So at any rate, this is a little bit here at the beginning about the last two podcasts, that podcast 40 was done on March the 30th, and then podcast 41 was only a few days later on April the 3rd. And then I decided to share um, from 35 years ago, um, medical astrology, basics of medical astrology with an introduction, that's podcast 42. And then also the four main asteroids and Chiron from another um, class. These are classes from the advanced series of the School of Planetary Studies that I created with a bunch of students back in the 1980s. In, in the middle of 1980s and the end of the 80s, so it's 35 years ago approximately, and they were originally, their 36 one-hour lessons with lesson notes and charts, and they were created on cassette tapes, and then they were changed into CDs, and then my daughter has created them as a digital a section on the Great Bear website. Uh, it's a fantastic tool. If any of you want to get in um, to learning the beginner series, you can start with 12. You can order the whole series of 36, and we decide to give two freebies out from the advanced series because they relate a lot to the previous podcast where I've shared so much about the United States progressed, secondary progress chart. The first 17 podcasts that were done last year were about the pro secondary progressed son of the United States from our birth chart of July 4th of 1776 and the pro secondary progressed Pallas Athena, that particular asteroid. And so getting into secondary progressions has been a very amazing revelation for myself and I hope many of you have enjoyed those and we're still going to continue with different progressions because they are powerful and many astrologers and astrology students only get as far as natal chart, major transits, and there are different progress systems. And I'll get into that a little bit um, in a moment about solar arc progressions and other progress systems. Um, and eventually in the future, share more about that. And again, this is another reminder that we have at least 15 different reports. They're computerized reports, but they're all based on your day, month, and year, your birth time as exact as possible, and your city, state, and country. And these reports are in our astrology shop, and they can be sent out relatively fast within 48 hours in most cases. And they provide all kinds of illumination on different areas, including transits and some of these secondary progressions and all kinds of other things, including the asteroids. And we have all these samples. You don't have to just go in and order something without knowing. You can actually read samples of famous people, well-known people, before you choose to order. And so this is one of the advantages of having these kind of reports. They're not as expensive as ordering consultations for any professional astrologer. So it's easier to receive and to study and to work with. And a lot of these refer back to only the natal chart when you were born, Others relate back to transits and progressions that are happening now and in the near future so you can learn more about where your cycles are going, your opportunities and challenges. And as long as you have an exact birth time or with a close um, approximation of birth time, these reports can be very helpful. So with, without further ado, then we had those last two podcasts were numbers 42 and 43 from the School of Planetary Studies. And again, I created a one-hour introduction 
for both of those. So at, at the current time, um, what I want to do, this is podcast 44. So what's the goal here? These piles of papers and these books, there's so many different things. Again, this is Monday, April 13th. We've just had this powerful sun Eris conjunction, which has illuminated this distant planet, Eris, which I'm suggesting a major keynote, although it's one of many, is war and this war against this invisible enemy. We've heard the president of the United States and the vice president and various medical officials, they're using that term. The president does for the most, and there's a reason, of course, our president has always wanted to be just like George Bush II and Abraham Lincoln and Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. There's kind of an advantage in a political way, and I'm not saying that this is a, a great desire because for many years when Woodrow Wilson was president, he, he became president in the fall of 1912 and then took office in early 1913. And when the war started in 1914, we didn't enter that war until 1917. In fact, it was almost, um, uh, let's see, 1917, 103 years ago. I think it was April 6, 1917, we went to war against Germany. And there were all kinds of reasons, and you could read all about that. But one of the big things that got him reelected in 1916, Woodrow Wilson, was he kept us out of war. And there was an astounding public uh, broadcasting show on three nights. This is oh, a couple of years ago now. And it, th one thinks of Woodrow Wilson um, as um, a, because he was a Democrat, that he must have done things very democratically. But during that wartime of 19, uh, the preparation at the end of 1916 and during 1917, 1918, you remember again, as I shared the last time, the Spanish influenza came into uh, focus um, at the end of World War I. And that actually uh, came out through Kansas, um, even though it was called the Spanish influenza. I explained in the last time why that happened and why that was a misnomer. But uh, back in that time period, that Democratic president, one of the ways he got reelected was he, we, he kept us out of war at the conventions to, to have him be reelected um, in 1916. So um, a lot of presidents um, want to be hailed as people who are peacemakers. And now that um, the president of the United States can't run on the economy being economy being fantastic and the stock market being fantastic, um, one of the things that often happens in different presidencies is there's a kind of uh, resorting, and this is Democrats and Republicans, um, to being a wartime president. So this is why we see the president now having handed off, um, what was it a month ago, Mike Pence, he's going to be in charge and will report back to me. And this was going to be Mike Pence's little baby of sharing with the dis different task forces, and then suddenly that's not it. I mean, he's there, but th it's the president of the United States because it's part of the Celebrity Apprentice. He's a master of TV, kind of like Reagan was with entertainment, and different people who become presidents have different skill sets, and one of the president's skill sets is, is TV and how to utilize TV. Um, by the way, today was a terrible example because there was an infomercial I wanted to make sure I said this because that is one of the astounding things that happened today at today's pre press conference was was pretty extraordinary um, if you saw it. 
there was a kind of video, and in fact, some of the stations, uh, CNN, uh, MSNBC, had to turn away because it was suddenly an infomercial because the New York Times had come out with an article from six different major writers that put together an article over the weekend about all the missed opportunities, particularly throughout March, of our uh, federal government not getting the testing going and being behind the eight ball and doing so many things. And so today was a real shocker. I wrote down 6 p.m. Eastern to 6.07 p.m. when when this infomercial, I wrote down with exclamation points, shocking. Um, and of course, in the, a lot of the evening news, again, different uh, broadcasters um, could not believe that this had happened, that it got that far. Um, so this was basically an infomercial on the same day that Bernie Sanders came out to support uh, Joe Biden. So we have different political rivalries going on between the White House showing what we might consider to be an early campaign um, advertisement from the White House press room of all places. So this was extraordinary. And I will now, uh, I will put this aside except to say something that according to tonight's numbers, just so we do get up to tonight, there are at least 580,000 cases of coronavirus of the, uh, in the United States. But of course, most researchers feel that's way low. And there's 24,000 Americans who've died, which is now eight times the number from 2011. Also approximately eight times the number of terrible deaths from Pearl Harbor. Um, but one of the big issues, and this would be another podcast if I can ever get to it, is this whole battle that also started today where governors uh, in the East Coast, in the Northeast, have banded together about coming, reopening the economy. When can that happen? And the same thing happened out here on the West Coast with, with the three governors of the state of Washington, Oregon, and California. And we're beginning to see these regional um, alliances of the governors and the president of the United States today, this was another extraordinary day. And I, I do believe this is connected to the sun conjunct Eris, as well as the moon approaching Jupiter and Pluto and Saturn and Mars. And we're, there's a lot of tough energies of planetary alignments coming up this week. And then next week is the, the new moon of Taurus, which I've shared before, takes place at the discovery position of Eris from November 1 of 1977. That Discovery of Eris position is three plus a Taurus. And next week on April 22nd, that new moon that starts off a whole 29 and a half day sun moon cycle, which will include the full moon of Taurus, the, the festival of the Buddha and Waisak. That new moon is on the discovery position of Chiron, which again brings up this kind of, we're all in this twilight zone period. Uh, Zane Stein, one of the great astrologers who wrote also for Welcome to Planet Earth and has had his own practice, I think he was the first one who brought up the idea of chirological time. And again, I shared before, when President Kennedy was killed, Chiron was stationary. It was not moving exactly on that day. And we were all thrown into a twilight zone of being outside of time. Total shock. Uh, it's so different than what we're having now. At that point, it was one person. Um, the, the President of the United States, uh, just like other assassinations in our history and assassinations of other leaders being murdered in a horrific way. And that was kind of the heyday of the beginning of television. And for four days, there were, it's hard for many of you to 
to comprehend this if you were not alive then. There were no commercials. And I lived in, I was living in Queens, New York, and there were the main stations of ABC, NBC, and CBS. And out of a courtesy to um, the, the presidency, the nation, Jackie Kennedy and the, and the two kids, um, in between the main news reports, there was somber music, or there were, you'd see some kind of either, not a quotation, but there would be something on the screen that was more of a uh, kind of a tribute to the passing of a great leader. And so it's considered um, in television history a demarcation of something. It was kind of like to show that reporting and news and things of a horrific kind could be utilized in an educational way for several days. And again, Chiron wasn't moving, just as it wasn't moving within uh, 24, 48, 72 hours um, of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand being assassinated on June 28th. 1914, Chiron wasn't moving. That led one month, one, one month later to the start of World War I. When we landed on the moon, uh, human beings for the first time, Chiron was stationing. When Pearl Harbor happened, Chiron was stationing. And I actually created a hypothesis before even knowing those dates. Of the dates in the 20, 20th century, I created a kind of uh, ge uh, geometry hypothesis if Chiron is what I think it is with twilight zones, we're all thrown out of chronological time and things are in an altered state of reality, then Chiron needs to be powerful. And one of the ways Chiron can be powerful, not all the ways, but a main way is if it isn't moving. And that's how I kind of discovered this power of Chiron with the twilight zone, among other things, being thrown out of chronological time. So the last new moon that we just had, uh, March, uh, 24th was conjunct Chiron. The sun and moon, the moon was actually conjunct Chiron and the sun the next morning on March 25th was in its annual conjunction with Chiron. So part of the problem that the whole world is experiencing, not just the United States, is we're in a twilight zone. Okay, we're absolutely in a twilight zone. Y yes, at the same time, these Chiron energies of the, the wounded healer and of the, the medical people online, on the front lines that are being applauded, whether in Italy uh, with music and in New York as well. We see firefighters, we see the medic, uh, firefighters and police uh, saluting the medical workers and the medical workers coming out for a moment from hospitals, some of them who can come out who are not ER officials or tending to a person who might be dying and coming out and giving a round of applause back to them. So we see extraordinary kinds of things happening. Um, and that, of course, we're seeing it all over the country with all kinds of acts of goodwill and good deeds. And so this is an important lesson for the whole planet. And I want to go into that a little bit more, perhaps at the end of this, but at another time. We are learning an enormous lesson. And as you'll see where we're going in this particular podcast and some of the others, I'm taking us back to other times in history. And when you have pandemics, like the Spanish flu at the end of World War One, And we're going to get into something else uh, in a moment here about what happened over 600 years ago in Europe. Um, everything changes. All of society changes. So we're in, um, I, I shared this, I think the last time I majored, I was supposed to become a doctor. Um, when I got to Michigan State in 1967, I was pre-med. Six weeks later, I was pre-law. Six weeks later, I was focusing on social science because 
what was happening in my family as the only male child back in New York, where my father was a doctor and his brother was a doctor, was that it seemed like I should be a doctor, but that wasn't what I felt I needed to do. And there was actually another practical reason. To be a doctor, you had in your uh, freshman year, your sophomore year, and your junior year, you couldn't take what were called electives. You had to take all kinds of things because if you were going to graduate in that area and then go on um, to go to medical school, you the first three years were all requirements. There was no way to take extra subjects that you might be interested in, like history or English or whatever. And that just didn't fit who I was at that point, age 17 to 18. At any rate, I wound up getting, I uh, did pretty well. I had was in what was called the Honors College. I actually left my, in the last half year because I was in a relationship with somebody uh, as a 20-year-old, and I went to Boston University and spent a while in Boston, and it was kind of unusual, but that's, I took some classes there and got my degree in what was called uh, multidisciplinary social science, and I bring this up because so much of what I'm experiencing now is sociological, and I'll explain a little bit more about that as we go through. Um, Social networking, social distancing, and for decades, I was wondering, why did I ever get that social science degree? And now with social networking and Zoom and FaceTime and everything with Facebook and the different apps and different kinds of things, as a much older person, it's, it's perfect that that was my field. And I'm still tuned into events sociological as well as psychological and metaphysical because these have been uh, fascinating fields for me as well as in Welcome to Planet Earth, so many different astrologers and writers were not just writing about astrology, they were writing about medicine, they're writing about ecology and the environment. And so there's so many of those from before. So let me let me read a little bit of a statement that I wrote um, down. I was going to type this up, but this was right after Podcast 7. And uh, I will read this. It's in my own notes here because I just have to read this out. This is where my consciousness was at. Uh, at the end, I, at the end of podcast seven, I just couldn't just stop. I had to write some notes. And what I said here, and this is an introduction for tonight, that last time brought so much attention to the unusual links between um, New York State and the two New York City subway charts, the amazing link between the discovery of Neptune, which was again in that uh, podcast 41, discovery chart of Neptune, which like um, the discovery chart of Uranus is now much more powerful than I ever imagined both of those charts to be. And again, I've been studying discovery of Uranus and discovery of Neptune and their charts connected to history, to world leaders, to all kinds of amazing things. But in that podcast uh, 41 or um, uh, the seventh podcast of the coronavirus, I connected the discovery of Neptune, and you can, again, see that chart, which is as close to exact as I can get, September 23rd of 1846, to the start of the Spanish influenza in March of 1918. And I shared the last time, I have to thank this person who called me from Detroit, one of the areas that's so hard hit, who had heard me on Coast to Coast Radio, um, where I've been on since uh not 19, but since 2004, at least 25 times, I've been fortunate to be on that show sharing about mundane astrology and other kinds of things with astrology. 
and somebody who's heard me call, left me a phone number and a message, hey, Mark, check into uh, the, the March 1918, beginning of the Spanish uh, flu in, influenza. And I went to a History Channel and a Wikipedia area, and it was in the History Channel that they gave a particular date for the first flu case. And the chart that I offered is actually for sunrise on that date. Um, that is not the bonafide chart on that date, but it, I often use a sunrise chart if no chart, no time is given. Sometimes, again, I will use a chart for a time around an event if there's a new, full, a new moon or a full moon or an eclipse, which happens within a day or two or a couple of days, I might shift over to that kind of chart as the, the main chart. But I offered the discovery of Neptune to link up with the Spanish influenza. So this is all part of the notes that I wrote um, during the last time, 10 days ago, when I did that podcast. And then also the connection between the two World Trade Center disasters, because I had never actually studied in depth the 1993 uh, underground uh, bombing that eventually led so many years later in, for the 2001. And so I saw all kinds of connections and I wanted to report on it uh, for various astrological reasons. And again, that was in the podcast 41. Now, um, in these notes, the other thing that came up, which is about to happen, uh, which is an extraordinary synchronicity, is that I realized that from, night, from the 2001, September 11th, horrific uh, World Trade Center disaster, disaster, New York and the Pentagon, but particularly in New York, we're now in a nodal return. The north and the south nodes have a cycle when you use what's called the mean nodes, which are the average motion. There's also the true nodes that Rob Hand contributed. They're more slightly going forward, slightly going backward, but ultimately they go backwards as well, but at a different rate. And so that's why there can be confusion in some of the ephemerides and in different charts. You might have an astrologer give you the north node and the south node, which relate to fate and destiny. It could be the mean or average position. It might be the true node. And unless, if you have had your chart done by different astrologers, the nodes could look different positions. Those are not errors. It's just that people use a mean or average position, which has always been used for like a couple of thousand years. And then the more scientific, quote unquote, position that Rob Hand presented. But then years later, uh, Rob Hand decided that he was actually getting better results with the mean node, even though he had in introduced the, the true node. No, I don't, that was a number of years ago. He might have changed back and he might be working with both. I do work with both, but it makes it a little bit confusing. But here's the point. Um, we are now at this next new moon that happens next week with New York City still in this dire condition we are going to have that new moon, which is in Taurus at three plus of Taurus on April 22nd, which ironically is Earth Day. And there's a number of things that are going to happen. A couple of days later, Pluto will make a station. Um, and then right after that, we'll have the annual Sun-Uranus conjun conjunction. So the dates around April 22nd, 23rd, 24th, 25th, there's enormous Chiron energy again because the, the sun and moon are on the Chiron discovery point, but there's Pluto energy, there's Uranus energy. And at the same time, we're getting the North Node and the South Node, the mean nodes from 2001, from September 11, 2001, exactly 18 years and seven months later coming back. And um, I don't, I'm sharing this again because I'm not expecting, 
I'm not trying to say, oh my gosh, we're going to have another terrorist event. I'm not trying to predict the future. We are already having the terrorist event is what I'm saying. And the true node return just occurred in the last week to 10 days. In fact, when I, when I, the night that I shared all of this was an exact true node return. So the, the true node and the north node, uh, the true node and the mean node in most charts, they're only a degree apart, maybe a degree and a half at most. Sometimes they're closer than that. So it, it's just an extraordinary kind of thing of, of living astrology to see these particular things. But at any rate, in the final part of these notes, I what was happening was I felt deficient that I presented so many of these amazing charts, but I didn't analyze each one. But I just want you to know that each of those charts, the first World Trade Center underground bombing chart, um, the, the, the discovery of Neptune chart, the chart for the Spanish influenza, the chart for September 11th, 2001, there are many aspects in that, in those charts that I was not covering because my job, what I felt was I'm not here at this point to describe all the details of the phenomenal patterns that were there. I wanted to give certain examples so that you knew what was happening. And again, I wanted to develop this more Hemingway, Old Man in the Sea, which was one of the great books that Hemingway wrote where he received uh, either the Nobel Prize or the Pulitzer or both. It was an extraordinary book when I read it because it was so different than The Sun Also Rises, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, which many of you may know, John McCain's favorite book was For Whom the Bell Tolls. Uh, bless his soul, he passed away. And even if so many people on the left and progressives disagree with him, you know what he had to deal with with the President of the United States in the run-up to that time period of 2015 and 2016, um, if you remember all of that, and his his recent passing. And um, I believe in my Earth Aquarius news section, uh, well, I know for sure I wrote this um, article because he, like Ted Kennedy, they both died um, of brain cancer and they were extraordinarily connected over their years, even though Ted Kennedy was, an, was older, uh, born in 1932. Uh, so he had several years older than John McCain, who was born a couple years later. They're both children of the Great Depression. But in terms of their Senate work, they respected each other. Um, they worked with each other, which doesn't, which hardly happens anymore. So that's sad to, to imagine. But at any rate, I do have a goal after this, this podcast of making shorter podcasts, if at all possible. So that's a little bit of the notes from the last time. So um, there is one kind of podcast that I wanted to do right now, and I'm not going to do it. And it's going to be, I guess, the next one, hopefully. It's a, a fairly exciting uh, podcast in terms of what I can do in that forum or in that structure for many podcasts to come. It's a certain format, and I wrote it up uh, three days ago, but I decided I can't do that because there's too many things to share. And again, if you hear me laughing, it's what I call cautious laughter. I have always had a good sense of humor, born with Uranus not moving. Uranus has a lot to do with jokers and jesters. Um, to try and get through a, a day, I've always considered myself an eternal optimist. I'm not as much in terms of everything as I see in the future, but each day at different times of the day, um, I need to have that positive outlook that things are going to get better at some point and that there's a 
giant lesson in all of this um, for for all of humanity. So um, I'm not going to do that. There's a there's a fantastic podcast that will be coming up. So let me do something. What's going to happen is if there's a pause, if you don't hear me say something for a second or two, it's grabbing books or notes that are literally at my feet because my desk is full of stuff and I've just gone through some of that, which is good, the things I've already shared. And now um, I'm going to grab three books. So what are these three books? Well, that, that didn't, it wasn't that much of a pause. Noel Teal, a great astrologer who recently passed away, very tall fellow. I remember going to a lot of astrology conferences. If, if you went to some of them, you know who he is. He was an opera singer. He was a fantastic astrology teacher, close to so many of the wonderful astrologers who wrote for Welcome Planet Earth and so many others. Well, he is, he's one of the persons who has worked with a different um, progress system. There are many progress systems. But he, in particular, and in fact, there's one of the reports you can order called Solar Arc Progressions. It's one of the least expensive also. It has different planetary uh, pictures. It's a different style report than, say, the Skylog, which, is, which has transits and progressions, which I heartily recommend, designed by Stephen Forrest, one of the reports. Uh, Timeline, which is designed by Michael Erlewine, who great initiator of so much in astrology and so much more in music and just almost a renaissance person uh, in our time with all the software created in astrology and one of my one of my mentors and teachers well Noel Teal also created his own school he designed solar arc progressions uh, which is a matrix report which again you can see samples on and you can order because it's based on what are called solar arc progressions where everything in the chart from if a person were born, say, January 1, 1975, then you're going, uh, let's say the person is now 40, 45 years old. Yeah, that would be right, 45 years old. In secondary progressions, somebody born January 1, 1975, and they're 45 years old at the beginning of this year, you'd go 45 days after the birth, after January 1 of 1975. Each day would be equivalent to a year of life. That's the fundamental idea of secondary progressions. They've been around a long time. There are a lot of nuances of that. With solar arc progressions, if the person was 45 years old, same person born January 1, 1975, what you would do is you would calculate how far has the sun moved uh, by progressions. And let's say it would be the sun moves about one degree per day. So each of those years of let's say 45, if the person's 45 years old, then the sun has moved 45 degrees, and then you move every single planet, Mercury through Pluto, the, the asteroids, whatever you got in there, Chiron, whatever you're using, you move everything 45 degrees. And if everything is based on the solar arc, not just the sun, but how far the sun has progressed. So in a sense, it's kind of like secondary progressions, where each day and the sun is prog progressing or transiting after birth. You're still going back to 1975, just like you would in secondary progressions, but now you're moving everything, the sun's motion only, rather than the motion of Mercury or Venus or Mars or whatever in their own motion, which is can be considerably less motion 
or more, depending on what it is, than the sun. Mercury can be moving twice as fast as the sun on a given day. The moon, of course, moves very fast. But at any rate, he, he worked with solar arc progressions, but th that's not why I wanted to bring him up. And again, bless your soul, Noel, because you've passed on not so long ago. He wrote a book that that um, is a pretty extraordinary book, um, Llewellyn Publications out of St. Paul, Minnesota, called um, Astrological Timing of Critical Illness, Early Warning Patterns in the Horoscope. And I remember reading it quite a while ago. It's really fascinating. Um, again, it looks like he was living in Arizona. He wrote his introduction in 1997. And it's just filled with all kinds of charts, particularly related to the what he discovered was a 160-degree aspect. Uh, you can, If you get that book, I mean, if you want to get through, on the back of it, it says, A Breakthrough Study of Early Warning Patterns in the Horoscope. Explore the predisposition to pathology as indicated in the horoscope. Learn the aspect patterns that natally that with solar arcs and transits reveal extreme challenge to the life system, the onset of specific body weakness and critical illness. Exercise. These are from the back cover. These are his notes. Um, exercise your observational skills in your facility reading planetary networks and timing patterns through the study of 70 horoscopes. Lead your clients to seek the early medical attention that could save their lives. Learn to communicate the indications of the horoscope to the client in a sensitive manner. Any rate, um, I'm just reading from the back. There are so many great astrologers. He never wrote for Welcome to Planet Earth, but you know what? I always had this vision when I wanted to get into this from my days of uh, listening to Walter Cronkite as a kid, that when I got into astrology at age 22, and I was in New York City, I, my main teacher became Dane Rudyard through books, and Dr. Mark Edmund Jones, and Evangeline Adams, and Alan Leo, and some of these great astrologers, Charles Carter of Great Britain, Eleanor Bach, which I've shared personally, where she lived in the Chelsea area of lower Manhattan, and so much learning going to Weiser's Bookshop, and these other places in New York, not just astrology, but tarot and metaphysics and reincarnation, the Edgar Cayce teachings, all these different things. But Noel Teal actually created an astrology newspaper, and it was called Astrology Now, but it didn't last that long. It might have only been a year, maybe two years. Other people would know more about it, and I could investigate it again. But I remember that coming out, and I thought, wow, that's what, that's what I want to do. But then it stopped. It stopped. It didn't continue. And then I created the Welcome to Planet Earth as a newsletter. It became a newspaper in 1982. And then it became a magazine, uh, 1985, 1986, Welcome to Planet Earth. And then you may know of the Mountain Astrologer. And Tem, Tem Terekart, um, who published it, he recently passed away, bless his soul. And th what they did, which was a, a testimony to me, they created their version of the cosmic calendar. They kind of looked at what I was doing, and they decided to do their thing. And they come out of Mountain View, California, and that's still in print. And they've got they've had an enormously successful run. I guess it's if they started in 1986 or so, then they've got 34 years, and I had 20 years. So, you know, amazing that they've been able to do that. There are many other astrology magazines which we could talk about: American Astrology, Daily Horoscope, The Mercury Hour, Eleanor Box uh, Newsletter, uh, Planet Watch, and so many things that other astrologers have done. And that goes back several hundred years. So anyway, there's Noel Teal. The reason why I wanted to bring up Noel Teal was I have a I have books that are surrounding my desk. I've got 
I've got books in a closet that in many cases, I don't even remember where all the books are. Some are in storage, but I grabbed this one. I was looking for it. I didn't see it out here where my other books are, but I grabbed two other books. And one is In Search of the Miraculous, P. Diospensky. The noted author of Tertium Organum combines the logic of a mathematician with the vision of a mystic in his quest for solutions to the problems of man and the universe. And I, and I mention this because I still have this book. And um, let me just read from the back of this. Um, P. D. Alspensky was born in Moscow in 1878. His first book, The Fourth Dimension, which I read, I read all of his books, placed him at the age of 31 in the front ranks um, of important writers on abstract mathematical theory. His second book, Tertium Organum, another famous book written in 1912, created a sensation in America on its publication in 1922. A new model of the universe written by 1914 and revised in 1929. Think of those years, written in 1914, beginning of World War I, revised in 1929, which was the stock market crash and then Pluto's discovery. A new model of the universe appeared in America in 1931. By the way, 1931 um, was the year that both Mikhail Gorbachev and Boris Yeltsin were born in that time period. Um, I know Mikhail Gorbachev was born um, in early March. I think it was March 2nd, 1931. And I believe Boris Yeltsin was born in the beginning of February of 19, uh, 1931. I hope I have those dates right, but it was the beginning of the Great Depression. Both of those Russian leaders then uh, final thing on the back of this book, it was immediately hailed as, quote, one of the most important philosophical volumes of our times. That's a new model of the universe, close quote. Mr. Ospensky died near London in 1947. There, uh, the, I do, like many people who do meditation and contemplation, this is part of how I got to where I was going because he introduced to the world George Gorgiev. And if you, I won't even talk about that at the moment. It's too vast of a subject. But all of these things, plus Rudolf Steiner uh, and his Anthroposophical Society and the Theosophical so Society, which led to the Arcane School and my working at Lucis Trust and Lucis Publishing Company and the Beacon Magazine near the United Nations before going to Findhorn in the 70s. So I, this was next to that book. And then the other book that's there is Apocalypse by my main literary mentor. It gives me chills to think about D.H. Uh, Lawrence, Apocalypse, his last work. The reason that I'm saying this is he. this is a retelling of Revelation from the Bible, from the New Testament, the final, the extraordinary 22 chapters of Revelation. And on his deathbed, near, near the end of his life, 1929, uh, he died near um, where all this is happening in Italy. He wrote three extraordinary travelogues, um, Twilight in Italy, Sea in Sardinia, and Etruscan Places. So this was all in the 1912 time period, then uh, right before World War One, going through Italy. He was born D.H. Lawrence. He lived a short life. He only lived to be 44 and a half. Um, he's the person who wrote Lady, Lady Charlie's Lover, um, Women in Love, The Rainbow, Kangaroo, so many different extraordinary books. And at one point I wrote 130 pages um, when I was getting into astrology to do an astrological portrait of D.H. Lawrence. And I still have all the typed, I had a typewriter, a royal typewriter of all these pages to do that work. And then I realized I was never gonna be able, it was gonna be a thousand page book. 
as you can tell, because my podcasts are really long. Uh, so when I get into something, I really get into it. And I grabbed Apocalypse. The reason I, I'm bringing up D.H. Lawrence is that he died on the French Riviera, not far from Venice. People forget. It was actually in a small place called Vence. And it was at a sanitarium because he had bronchial lung problems growing up in the minefields, the coal mines um, in Eastwood, England, in Nottingham. And so like so many other people, like John, John F. Kennedy, Theodore Roosevelt, so many different people who are ill as children, they live a kind of strange life. Mickey Mantle, my baseball hero, his father had osteomyelitis. His father, his grandfather had osteomyelitis. The father and the grandfather died in their 30s. So Mickey Mantle, who is a great, you know the name, great hero for me and so many New Yorkers in the 50s and 60s, who was injured all the time. And it's just an extraordinary kind of life about pain, but he lived recklessly in terms of his marriage life and so on, because he thought he was gonna die when he was 38, 39. He eventually lived to be in the 60s and he, he, he died of liver cancer. And so many different people, same thing with John F. Kennedy, he was very sickly. Same thing with D.H. Lawrence. Now, many children in the world die of starvation. So I'm not trying to say, oh, you know, these people should be looked at differently. But to understand their lives, very often we see a lot of strange behavior and reckless behavior or this urge to do many things as fast as possible because they have in the back of their mind that they're going to die when they're young. And therefore they speed up what they do. And often what they do is, I'm not saying John F. Kennedy, everything he did was reckless. Um, He's one of the persons that that I admire very great for how he did so many things in World War II and everything else. Now, every person in America and around the world that will say things about whether it's Nixon or Kennedy or Trump or Biden, and we get into the, the conservative religious, I, I don't look at things really that way. I look at it as like, is the person trying to, what, they're, what are they trying to do in their heart of hearts? Is there a creative spirit behind what they're doing? How, how good, you know, what kind of goodwill is coming out of that individual? What kind of compassion? That's just me. That's what, that's what stirs me. Because, for instance, I read now a book that I only got a year ago at a, at a used bookstore on the Dalai Lama's Daily Guidance. Um, they're little snippets of things. And I never, I've always admired him, but I never incorporated that into my studies. And Deepak Chopra is another person, and I'll report more about that in this next podcast that I'm not sharing this time. But at any rate, I grabbed these books, and the reason for Apocalypse is not only that the, the last work of D.H. Lawrence was a, a sort of re-understanding in 1930, 1929, 1930, of Revelation from 2,000 years ago, but now in Italy... They are calling this their apocalypse, or they use the term for apocalypse um, because of everything that's happening. And that was, he died after visiting Italy so many years and having so many connections to the Italian landscape and these extraordinary, I mean, he was a great short story writer, a great poet, great novelist, and a great person of letters. In those days, so many of those people, they were writing letters and the letters survived. Whereas now everything is Facebook and email and Twitter and FaceTime. We don't have a language the same way we had it before. So he wrote his last book 
and I happen, and that's what I grabbed off the shelf, Apocalypse. And then I go and I start watching TV last night when Richard Engel was sharing this extraordinary show. And if you've never watched Richard Engel, talk about somebody on the front lines. He has been in Syria with the wars in the Middle East and in Saudi Arabia and in Yemen and in Iran. And you can go down the list. And now he's doing extraordinary work. He works for NBC. He works for MSNBC. And I don't care what anybody thinks. You think they're negative or if you're a Trump supporter, which I I hope you're not. But if you are, watch Richard Engel, E-N-G-E-L. If you can catch his latest one called Pandemic, the sensitivity, putting himself on the front lines, the way it's explained. This was last night as the sun Iris conjunction was approaching. So in, it was in that show that they bring up Apocalypse. This is what they're calling it. And D.H. Lawrence died, um, it's now 90 years ago, right before the discovery of Pluto. It was only a couple of weeks ago, March 13 of, of 2020, which was the celebration. And um, this happened through NASA and it happened in different ways on TV, uh, space.com, space that website telling everyone, let's honor the 90th anniversary of the discovery of Pluto. And D.H. Lawrence was very connected. His symbol was the phoenix. That was all on his books. The phoenix, the, the firebird that lives for 500 years mythologically, dies, builds its own funeral pyre, and then is reborn. The whole idea of death and rebirth is, is caught up with the mythology of the phoenix. And again, we have the city of Phoenix connected with that particular name. And there are other places called Phoenix in the world. Well, D.H. Lawrence had that as a symbol. And so his fiery, intense poetry, novels, he was a painter, uh, but he only lived to be 44 and a half. And the, the other part of this uh, little tribute is that his sanitarium was called Ad Astra, it's that which means to the stars. And Brad Pitt just starred in a movie called Ad Astra. So we have also the connection back to the discovery of Pluto 90 years ago, D.H. Lawrence dying it was 11 days. He died on March 2nd, 1930. Very close. People often will think it's Venice, but he actually died in a French city called Vence at a sanitarium. And again, he had lung disorders and he had them for his whole life. Again, because he was born in the area with coal mines. It brings up the whole idea of pollution and the industrial age and all these terrible things that we're still having ridiculous afflictions with. So there's that. I, I grabbed that. So let me grab something else. Bear with me. So this was written on a napkin, believe it or not, and just in the last hour on a napkin. The whole thing today that I found unbelievable, I mean, aside from the infomercial, which was a video infomercial from the press room at the White House, fundamentally being a campaign speech to go against the New York Times by the president that they had orchestrated, I guess they had this in the works anyway, but they probably fine-tuned it over 24 hours to present the image of the president of the United States having been Johnny on the spot. He's done everything right. We know that that's not true, but nevertheless, for his supporters and for the campaign coming up against Joe Biden, any read on a paper napkin, here was the other story. That's why there's so many stories. In the morning, I think, wow, this is going to be the big story. And this morning, the big story was coming across the TV, breaking news, president of the United States does not support bailout of the U.S. Postal Service. Well, this is what, and I didn't even hear anybody talk about this today. This is what's so shocking to me. The first thought I had was, he doesn't want the mail-in ballots. This is what literally 
went on last week with the whole Wisconsin vote uh, because the Republicans forced it to happen. And part of the reason was there was a, uh, a, a fellow on the, on the court, on the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court, and they wanted him to win. They wanted everybody to go out and vote. They didn't want to delay, which is what the Democratic governor of Wisconsin wanted to delay everything. And then the, um, the Senate and, uh, and, and then the su Supreme Court of Wisconsin, as well as the actual Supreme Court of the United States, all said to the Wisconsin people, you got to go and vote. That was crazy in itself. We're all, how that is even possible, these, these hypocritical and crazy situations, how you can't be logical. I've said before, I feel like I'm Mr. Spock from Star Trek. And I love that show. And I loved a lot of those movies. And I relate a lot to Captain Kirk as the human being, the captain of that ship. But the Vulcan, Mr. Spock, I'm born when Mercury and Saturn, their midpoint, and this is another thing I've studied, which if you haven't, there are, that goes back a hundred years to Germany and a fellow astrologer named Michael Munchasey wrote a great book about midpoints and can't get into it now, but we've got natal midpoints, you got transiting midpoints, you got progressed midpoints. There are dozens and dozens of middle points in the zodiac and they have two ends. One's a near midpoint and one's a far midpoint. And of course, with all the, uh, as I said in a previous podcast about the, the astrologers who work with asteroids, it's one thing to work with, with Ceres, Pallas, Athena, Juno, and Vesta, but there are people who are working with dozens of asteroids named for people and for famous people and for cities like Wuhan, the asteroid Wuhan. And so people are charting that almost like, let's just look at that to see what's going to happen with the uh, coronavirus. I'm not saying they're only looking at that. But, um, and I would love to study it as well. I'm getting a lot of results as Rob Hand, um, one of the, our great astrologers have always said, it depends on the toolbox of the astrologer. We can get answers, we can understand things. And there are many different ways to do that. And so we all, astrologers have many, many different tools. What I'm using a lot of right now are discovery charts of different planets. I'm using um, discovery charts connected to some of the things like the Spanish flu. Uh, and other things which we'll get into in a moment. But at any rate, the, the reason I say this today, that this was shocking, is that behind all of it, and I never saw any more reporters today talk about this, was, of course, the President of the United States doesn't want mail-in balloting. He didn't want mail-in balloting before, even though he himself has mailed in his own ballot. So how, how hypocritical can you get? He doesn't want to stand on any lines. You know, this used to be a kind of big thing of like, in the past, you'd see... Truman or whoever it was, they go vote, right? Jimmy Carter voting. Of course, Jimmy Carter has been our best ex-president. He went to different nations. This is the kind of guy, even though he just went through cancer and he's in his 90s, he used to go to Honduras and different countries around the Middle East, countries that are we would call third world countries or countries that had had generals in power, military, military juntas, and then they would have their first democratic govern, government or leader and he would go over as a kind of overseer. Hey, Jimmy Carter's here. He wants to help out to make sure that the vote is good. Well, that's what we need here. We, we, and we vote by mail in Oregon. We're only one of three states along with Washington and Colorado, officially 100% mail-in. We've done it for 25 years or so. And it's, a, it, it's easy and it makes sense and, it's, and it can be secure, but not if you are the president of the United States and you don't want lots of people voting. So at any rate, 
It's through the United Postal Service. I mean, in our state, you can drop off your ballots at special, their white mailboxes in different places in Lane County, the county I'm in. And I'm sure they have the same thing in the other counties in Oregon. So you don't have to put a stamp on those if you get them in early enough. Otherwise, you put them in the mailbox and then they, they get sent and they get recorded by a, you know, a good team of people wherever the elections are. It's not that Democrats are just going to um, run roughshod over all this and add a bunch of votes. That That's not happening. It's not a bunch of fraud. At any rate, to not support the Postal Service, and there are so many areas of the rural country. I mean, I send out letters. I receive letters. I have a P.O. box and a regular address. People where I live pick up their mail every day. I mean, there's no way you can let the Postal Service go down, regardless of the fact of their difficulties, with all the trillions of dollars. And it just doesn't make any sense. But, of course, if it's under a political thing. So that was this morning, okay? Um, What else happened? Oh, just tonight. um, Let's see if I can read my own writing. Oh, I know. what. This is very important. Okay, so let's get this in. Those pictures of the food banks, of the hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of cars in San Antonio, if you saw that, on Easter weekend, the irony that the President of the United States was hoping that the churches would be filled. I did see something in Detroit where some pastor came up with an idea, and I guess it was working, of people in a parking lot at the church and putting a big screen kind of TV in front people not touching and being in their cars and honking and making different kind of things, wearing face masks, protecting, but kind of congregating, but without touching each other. So that was a unique situation. But then the irony, because again, no matter what we're hearing about so many different people getting checks and coming out through the IRS or the social security, we know that one of the big problems is the phone lines and the Wi-Fi and trying to go online. There it's overwhelming. It's not like anybody had prepared for this. And yet, from the press conferences in Washington, you hear all the time, oh, well, just go to, you know, suchandsuch.gov. Or, you know, if you have any questions, I heard this today from the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. If you have a problem with something, if you haven't gotten your check, if it doesn't come through your direct deposit, there's so few, so many people don't have direct deposit. There's so many people who are poor, they don't have regular banking accounts that there's all this stuff. Well, if you contact irs.gov or you go online and this and that, and everything is overwhelming. There's not a whole lot of people sitting around because people are also out sick and they're, they're home. So when you call some of these national uh, lines or corporate lines, or if you're wanting to change your mortgage or having to deal with rent and landlords and all this stuff, the government makes it sound like just call this number or we're going to give you this money, which again is such, such a small amount of money that they're going to have to do this all over again. So um, the thing t- tonight was all about, and this is very amazing, they had the chef. This was on MSNBC on Brian Williams, or it wasn't. maybe it wasn't on Brian Williams. It might have been on Lawrence O'Donnell, uh, I believe. Um, Andrew Zimmon, he's a world-famous chef. But he was talking about um, the food banks, not just the food banks, um, but the farm workers. This is a big deal with whether we're going to have the supply of food that we need. Now, right now, we have t- so many different situations. One of my daughters is helping so that I don't have to necessarily go to stores, but I can pick up groceries that she orders. If you have a daughter or a son or somebody and you're an older person, 
you can work out some of these things, but a lot of people don't have that. They're, they're alone or they don't have children or people who can help them. So the farm workers are getting sick. The grocery clerks are also getting sick. These are also frontline workers. Um, and we need to sort of keep planting different crops. And then because of everything from the president of the United States trying to either lock up or uh, prevent people from coming from Mexico because of that whole initial idea, we need to keep them out, we need to build a wall. Now we're seeing the kind of reverberation, what, I, what people might call karma of that whole situation because we desperately always need these workers. And if we don't have the workers or they're, get, or they're getting sick, and a lot of the workers cannot just be in their own home. They have to work in the fields. And if one person is sick, they can pass it along to so many people. We know that that's a super spreader. So there's all these kind of concerns. We don't know where it's going to go. And we hope that you know the farms can stay open and so on. But the reason I bring this up is Ceres, the largest asteroid, which is the only stationary body of the main planets, uh, including asteroids and Chiron, the United States chart, it's the only stationary body. And it is located, uh, when America was born July 4th, 1776, at eight plus degrees of Pisces. The asteroids like Ceres, Pallas, Athena, Juno, and Vesta, they have cycles of about three and three quarters years, four years, four plus years or so. These are all the main bodies. Uh, this is not Chiron, because Chiron orbits between Saturn and Uranus. It has a 49-year to 51-year cycle. But the asteroids, the four main ones, and other asteroids in the asteroid belt, they generally come back approximately, let's say, every four years. So this year, Ceres is about to come back. And the whole concept of America, the idea of the melting pot, the idea of the different religious and ethnic groups and different philosophical groups, uh, all different strata of society, people from all over the world coming here. That is a testament to Ceres, the largest asteroid, which is named sort of connected to the goddess of corn and grains, cereals. Now, there's a lot of reports over years. I have a lot of friends about gluten and all the terrible things and different cereals that are bad, wheat, and different kinds of things. And of course, we all know that when you go to your markets, getting things without gluten and not so, so many people saying cereals are bad or whatever it is. But nevertheless, less, America has always been called the breadbasket of the world, corn, wheat, and the melting pot. Think of the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island, the gold rush. Of We're a country of immigrants. That's the nature of who we are, of different uh, places and religious groups and ethnic groups and so on. Um, so Ceres is coming back on May 28th to 8 plus of Pisces. Then Ceres will go retrograde and it will return on August 14th. And on December 20th, Ceres comes back for the third time this year. So normally Ceres will come back every four years, but it doesn't come back three times. It has to do with where Ceres will retrograde. And that's why a lot of people are always knocking Mercury to retrograde being bad. I did a whole... Uh, a podcast which came from one of the last magazines we did, cover story, The Truth About Mercury Retrograde. And more people have listened to that one. It's still in the quay of the podcast. Um, because planets that are retrograde are actually more powerful. I mean, this is something I've studied for 47 years. In terms of what they are, in terms of their own independence as a planet, when a planet goes retrograde, it's not going in the same direction as the sun and moon, which are always going forward. And Dane Rudger particularly shared about this in, in different kinds of his writings, and he's my main mentor. 
So when Mercury goes retrograde, yeah, yeah, it's important to be more careful, uh, to review and reflect. And if you're going to make agreements, you might want to wait or you might want to think it more thoroughly and so on. But Mercury itself or Venus, when it, I've just done a, a, um, an astroflash about Venus and Vesta are making three conjunctions. You can find that in the Earth Aquarius news section and particularly for women with the asteroids because they are goddess energies. Venus as a planet and the moon as the Earth satellite um, is usually considered feminine. It's not always feminine in certain kind of mythologies, the moon itself, because it's not really a planet. But um, Ceres, Pallas, Athena, Juno, and Vesta. And now that we've discovered some of these faraway planets like Sedna and Eris, which are goddesses, and again, some of their qualities seem negative, but I think that's part of the distortion because they're so far away. The male chauvinist culture that we've had for so many thousands of years have kind of uh, distorted the feminine functions. And I'm sure that Sedna and Eris, um, there are certain things I want to say, particularly about Eris at another time that I know is very positive and Sedna has many positive qualities. So despite what I'm sharing, in other podcasts in this one where I say Sedna use the word frozen. After all, we have had these movies, of, particularly for young people, uh, called Frozen from Disney and Frozen on Ice and some of these other kinds of things. So it, very often these archetypes come in, in this case Sedna, and they're not recognized when you, when you think of fr Frozen, the character is not called Sedna or anything like that, but it's based on the fact that we now have this archetype that has come into our lives from a planet that's very far away. And the same thing with Eris. Um, one of the things about Eris is important is on the, with the 12 major Olympians on Mount Olympus in Greek mythology and in the Roman equivalent of that, you don't see Eris, the sister of Mars. She's not there. And in many ways, I mean, there's many goddesses and gods that are not part of that group of 12. For instance, Uranus isn't in there because Uranus is from a Titan mythology. Saturn's not in there or Kronos because that he was the father of, of Zeus and Jupiter from a previous generation. Uh, but the, the 12 major Olympians, there's half are male and half are female. And if we don't use Ceres, Pallas, Athena, Juno, and Vesta, that's why when those asteroids uh, came out in the first asteroid ephemeris in 1973, again, they were discovered in the early 1800s that we have these great astrologers, not all women, but many of them are pioneers, Eleanor Bach, uh, Dimitri George, Zipporah Dobbins, and many other women in particular working with the four main goddess um, asteroids, uh, as well as a book that I mentioned the last time, which goes back 35 plus years, uh, Goddesses in Every Woman by Dr. Jean Shinoda Bolin, who was not an astrologer and who wrote that and a sequel called Goddesses in Every Man. And so through psychology and psychiatry, we have those books, which are extraordinary. So, so now you know, Ceres is coming back and the whole issue of food. That's why I'm concerned about it. It's one thing for Ceres to come back to its own position, um, which Ceres is much more involved than cereals and grains. Everything about agriculture, everything about labor. If we have uh, desert type conditions, if there are fires that destroy land, all of these relate a lot to Ceres. And sometimes with fires, that'll bring up Vesta or with intelligence and different kinds of things or knowledge and wisdom, then we'll relate to Pallas Athena. And when we have to deal with um, safety and security issues regarding food, 
in other words, foods that are bad or listeria outbreaks and these other kind of things, uh, poisons in food or problems with drugs and drugs being recalled, then we get Ceres combined with Vesta. So in many cases, Ceres gets combined with the other asteroids as well as other planets. But the whole world of commodities, uh, uh, minerals and, and silver and gold and the fluctuations of those markets, uh, corn, sales of corn bushels and wheat and these kind of things, orange futures in the markets, they're all connected very much to Ceres. Um, and, and so many of the asteroids in different ways are connected. By the way, again, we have Astro Business Keys, a free section on the Great Bear Enterprises website, and you can look up the sun, the moon, the main planets, and the four main asteroids in Chiron and read some of those themes and archetypes. So again, the food situation, these long lines of the food banks and the pictures in San Antonio, <clears throat> where some people originally thought that is not, that has got to be a false report. And yet it wasn't. There were so many people, and it's not the only area where people are um, desperately needing food. So I'm going to take a sip of water. Somebody recommended the last time that I do that. I think of uh, Marco Rubio when he was uh, running for president, and uh, he gave a, a talk. He was the Republican person after uh, Barack Obama, President Obama, gave a talk, and he had to keep gulping water, and it, it became kind of comical at that particular point. So um, let me grab something else here. I'm going to keep on going. I know we're at somewhere, well, we're at an hour and 45 minutes. So two of the charts are going to be, I don't know, they were kind of mind-blowing to me. And I only did this last night. So what happened was, is that I have a book called The People's Chronology, a year-by-year -year record of human events from prehistoric to the present. James Traeger. I've had this for a long time. It goes from B.C. time up to, I think, 1980. And I'm just looking here, how many pages? 1,200? 1100 plus pages. It's incredibly well done. What happened last night was, and there's another book here, Table, The Table of Planetary Phenomena by Neil F. Mickelson. Now, Neil F. Mickelson, bless his soul, passed away a while back. The Hundred Year Ephemerides from the American Astrology Series, that's Neil Mickelson. I got my start, my first, um, I may have mentioned him before at what's called the National Council for Geocosmic Research, which at that point was in New York City. And I got into astrology in 1972 and 1973. And my main study, uh, I mean, the biggest study was the assassination of President Kennedy. And my first public talk on anything was at the National Council of Geocosmic Research, a small meeting one day in New York City, where I gave a kind of spiritual and esoteric understanding of President Kennedy being assassinated. Um, I can't go into all of that now, but it's, uh, again, you can see an article, The Wound That Never Heals. Um, my daughter has created the slide show. Oh, it's not a slide show, but it slides in terms of our Earth Aquarius News section, which used to be the name of our previous website. Now, again, we're www.greatbearenterprisesplural.com. And she just created a really neat area on her website. And it's, it's just really cool to see the variety of the stories that you can see. And then you can click to go into that section. And that section also has our Astro Flash uh, uh, stories that I started, oh, 
I guess it was a year and a half ago. I don't even remember exactly when I started. I think the first Astro Flash had to do with Tiger Woods, possibly either. Um, and it wasn't just the Masters. It was something else um, that was pretty, pretty fascinating. Or it might have been when he won that Masters uh, again after such a long layoff. But nevertheless, there's Astro Flash in there and there's um, the Iris on Sedna at the Donald Trump inaugural, which I've referred to before, that we, all the people born in the late 1940s and early 50s, just like the President of the United States from when he was inaugurated on January 20th of 1917, where he had an exact Iris on his Sedna, which is why I got into all of the Iris on Sedna and the archetypes as well as Chiron, all of us are having it, everybody born in 1946. By the way, uh, except for Barack Obama being born in 1961, think about this. This is really fascinating. We end World War I in 1945. It ends in May in Europe. It ends in September in the Pacific. That the So we have the end of 1945. Well, President Clinton, okay, the in 1992 and 93, he was born in August of 1946, okay, for eight years. The next person who became president was George W. Bush, uh, the, George Bush II. He was born one month earlier, July, actually six month, six weeks earlier, but in the month of July of 1946. Then Barack Obama becomes president. He was born August 4th of 1961, nine days before the Berlin Wall went up, during the Kennedy administration. But then, and he serves for eight years. And then who do we get? Out of nowhere, Donald Trump. And I've said, he is the strongest chart I've ever seen connected to the United States birth chart of July 4th, 1776. If you don't think the United States was born on that day, well, then look at Donald Trump's chart because he is making connections over and over and over again to that chart, which is one of the, I mean, we don't need that for verification. Barry Lines, the great researcher, wasn't even a professional astrologer, did meticulous work when we started Welcome to Planet Earth in 1981, actually did meticulous work before that, because I knew him in Springfield and Amherst, Massachusetts in 1980, before I even started Welcome to Planet Earth. And he was with me at the beginning. Now, I haven't shared with him in a long time, but he did extraordinary books, three of them, uh, <clears throat> the next 20 years, which he self-published, um, which gave his uh, rectification of the United States birth chart going beyond, which I accepted, my own mentor, Dane Rudyard, in astrology, the astrology of America's destiny. So the whole con trying to figure out when was America born on July 4th, 1776. And I know a lot of people out there, Mark Penfield, there's so many other people who work with a different chart earlier in the day. Um, there are all kinds of different times that have been given out for that date. Then there are other people who say it wasn't that date. It was in August or it was in June or the great Jim Lewis. No, it was the Battle of Lexington and Concord back in April 19 of 1775. Now, there all these charts have power, just like I've always shared April 30th, 1789, when George Washington takes the oath of office in New York City. And the time is a little bit questionable. That is a chart I use for what I call presidential power. It has an extraordinary energy. The Constitution has a chart for when they all met in Philadelphia, but then it had to be ratified. And that's a different chart uh, the following year in, in the summer of 1788 rather than September of 1787. And there's a chart for when the Bill of Rights became part 
of the Constitution, separate from the Constitution, Constitution itself. All of these charts have different powers, different purposes, and so on. So back to the people's chronology and the table of planetary phenomenon. This is too vast of a subject, and I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes, notes version. But last night, in the middle of the exact, absolutely exact, sun Eris annual conjunction, which I've never shared before in the cosmic calendar last year, the year before, the year before that, but because of this war, again, in this pandemic, I was watching the Richard Engel show, uh, uh, documentary, which was extraordinary. That's why I grabbed those books, having to do with Apocalypse and Noel Teal's book, and In Search of the Miraculous. I just, I grabbed one, the others were there, and I just grabbed them, and I didn't know why I was grabbing them. It was from a closet with books. So that led me to several hours of this research. So I'm just going to share a little bit, but the charts are going to be, here are the charts, and I have them marked up. Now, you're not going to see the marked up charts. But I have one chart will be sun dash iris research plague. It's about the bubonic plague, the Black Death from the, 13, the 1347 to 1349. I did this last night at 1.33 in the morning. And the chart itself is very amazing. This is the chart I said earlier tonight in this session that all the planets are, are between the moon in Capricorn and Venus and Vesta in Gemini except Juno in Libra which is on its own and retrograde. And so this has so much to do with this. Um, we're all feeling this extraordinary um, condition of the social isolation or the social dis distancing because Libra is the sign of relationship. Juno, like Venus, is very connected to that particular uh, planetary energy. And Juno is currently going retrograde. Again, that is not a bad thing. And the United States, I've shared before, the closest aspect in the July 4th, 1776 chart is, drumroll, Chiron, 20 plus of Aries, opposite Juno, 20 plus of Libra. It's closer than the Mercury opposition to Pluto, which is within three degrees. We used to share lots of articles about that in Welcome to Planet Earth. Now we're experiencing, and I checked this out last night, when the United States came into being, we didn't know Pluto was out there. We didn't know that until 1930. But once we put Pluto in the chart, we could see that Mercury retrograde at the, at the birth of America um, and Pluto were, were opposite within three degrees. And I just checked last night because I have a, a program where I can look month by month after July 4th, 1776. I can go back in time and I can see how when, when Pluto was retrograding, did it get back to actually make an opposition to Mercury in those few months after 1776? It never did that. Now we have that. And this is one of the, I guess I'd say scary. Well, I, I, I'm just about to say the word. So we're in the midst of having Pluto um, opposite because Pluto is about to return. This is the other big thing of why we're in the dire straits we're in. Nobody could understand that we'd have this particular pandemic, but we knew from our national intelligence and from medical experts going all the way back tonight, they were showing there was a 60-page report from the year 2000 and so that goes back to the end of the Clinton administration or right at the beginning of the George Bush number two administration 20 years ago, that the big problem that America had to face, in fact, the whole world had to face, the number one problem, and this came out of the Pentagon study, was epidemics and pandemics. So it's not as if people didn't know. And I know the president of the United States keeps, keeps saying he inherited he used the, 
the term, the cupboards were bare, when, because he's always blaming Barack Obama. Guess what? You've been president now for two plus years. I mean, all of, actually more. I mean, three years. 2017, from January 20th, you've been president. Then you were president in 2018, 2019. So this, I've seen this happen before. It's ridiculous. When, when President Reagan, okay, he did some amazing things and he had a certain abilities as in, from entertainment. And we all went through that time period of his eight years. Um, and he did some incredible things. But at the same time, I'll never forget um, when our Marine barracks were bombed in a terrorism thing in Lebanon and over 200 American Marines were killed. And he actually blamed Jimmy Carter and the fact that we weren't prepared. So this whole thing, uh, whether it's Republicans blaming Democrats or Democrats uh, blaming Republicans, when you're the president, like Truman said, the buck stops there. Our president, no matter what you think, no matter what your political views are, he's had three years to rectify all of this, to prepare for the pandemics and to listen to his advisors. And we know that he didn't listen in the last couple months, but he had all those years. So you can't keep blame, blaming President Obama. Enough is enough already on that. So what I did, though, this is pretty um, astounding stuff. I have a chart. It'll it'll show Venita, Oregon, where I live, one thirty-three in the morning, which was, I did about 25 minutes. But then what happened was, through the table of planetary phenomena by Neil Mickelson, you can go back to find different conjunctions like Jupiter and Saturn when they occurred way back into BC times. And Jupiter and Saturn come, can, can uh, come together every 20 years. Jupiter-Uranus conjunctions, Jupiter-Pluto conjunctions, and so on. Uh, Uranus-Neptune conjunctions, Uranus-Pluto conjunctions. And, and I found this Jupiter-Pluto conjunction from, 19, uh, from 1347, March 26, 1347, using his exact coordinates for 4.57 p.m. using London. And when and this is old, um, the old calendar, the Julian calendar date, not the, the Gregorian calendar. So sometimes it's very hard to do. My point is I was going to read from, from the people's chronology, but um, the chart I have connected to now, to the last several years, there's an extraordinary conjunction of this Jupiter-Pluto, which was the beginning year of the, Bla the Black Plague and the Bubonic Plague, which originated, again, ironically, or, or literally, from the Far East and came into Europe. It came through Cyprus in 1347. So the chart you'll see from March 26, nine, uh, thir I keep wanting to say 19, 1347, with a specific time, it was actually, you'll see on the western side, on the right side of the chart, and this is what I find fascinating. I've just been telling you that now we have the, between the moon and Venus and Vesta in Gemini, all the celestial bodies except for right now Juno is by itself. When you look at the chart from 1347, when Jupiter was conjunct Pluto, part of the reason I'm using that chart is it happened around the beginning of the bubonic plague. There's a particular date, and we're now having Jupiter with Pluto. We just had Jupiter conjunct Pluto, and Jupiter will conjunct Pluto again. And they're the two of the three brothers, along with Neptune, in ancient Roman and Greek mythology. J Jupiter ruled the, the heavens, Pluto ruled the underworld, and Neptune ruled the oceans and the seas. Now, I'm not saying that this alone is the cause of all this, but we do see that in 1347, Jupiter and Pluto were together. Later in that 
year uh, in May, uh, somewhere in my notes here, then Jupiter and Uranus came into a conjunction. And there, a couple years before that, in 1343, several years before the, the plague came and devastated Europe, killing 50 million people, 25, whatever the numbers of millions, it was, it was half the population of Europe and England and that whole area. So there is a connection, and I, I may want to try and read a couple of entries here, but we just had Uranus and Pluto making squares to each other between 2012 and 2015 in the signs um, of, of Aries, where Uranus has been located in Capricorn. So Uranus and Pluto were making squares during the Obama administration uh, in, in, the, in 2012 for a couple years. There were at least five. There may have been more. And I was just looking at all the different dates. And those, those squares of Uranus and Pluto back in 13... Back in 1347, what was happening was um, Uranus and Pluto were in a conjunction. See, a couple years before, they were in a conjunction several times at 11 plus degrees of Aries. So we're having um, the lead-in before we have this pandemic. We had these outer planets making a square recently in 2012 to 2015 several times and that was several years ago but several years before the black plague bubonic plague we had uranus conjunct pluto at 11 plus degrees of aries and, and 10 degrees of aries three different conjunctions which by the way can connect up to the mercury position mercury rules medicine among other things in the discovery of uranus chart in 1781 so we now have a connection between 1343, three Uranus-Pluto conjunctions, led the way to Jupiter conjunct Pluto and Jupiter conjunct Uranus in the first year of the, of the, uh, the bubonic plague. And the, it's all connected into Aries. And we just had the sun. Aries is the beginning of things. Okay, it's the first sign. And among other things. But it's also a sign traditionally ruled by Mars, which can, connects up to war on one level. Mars was also a god having to do with agriculture and having to do with food. And this is part of the crisis that we have now, food and supplies and, and the connection between animals and human beings in terms of where the virus originated and so on. So this is all much greater than, than medicine and vaccines and hospitals, as terrible as these scenes are. And the frantic thing of what are we going to do? How are we going to get the economies going? you know, the terrible loss of life, so many different people not being able to be with their loved ones when they pass due to the overflow of the hospitals and all this. So the the fascinating thing, though, when you go back to this Jupiter-Pluto conjunction, which I'm suggesting is the kind of launching pad of one of these powerful alignments, because we're having the same Ju Jupiter conjunct Pluto now. By the way, I said last time, I believe it was, that one of the the, the, the subscribers to Welcome to Planet Earth and to my work in Cosmic Calendar uh, been with me a long time. She suggested that I go back 12 years ago to do a podcast having to do with the, the last economic disaster of 2008, and Jupiter was with Pluto then. So Jupiter is often considered good and positive and optimistic, but it's also the largest planet. So because all planets don't, ne don't necessarily are all good or all bad, Jupiter can represent bigness or hugeness, like the President of the United States is always saying, it's going to be huge, it's going to be big, 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that bigness is, is good. Bigness can be like a big pandemic, something that is beyond our means to deal with. And Pluto is the god of the underworld and also is the guardian, shall we say, of everything beyond Pluto. So, so Sedna, Eris, Haumea, Makimaki, Quayor, all these other planets that we're discovering, in a way, they have to pass through the Plutonic underworld, the gates of Pluto, the god of the underworld. So in many ways, that's why Sedna may have some of the negative energies that Sedna has with Frozen. That's why Eris may have some of the negative energies with, with war, aside from the mythologies. So that the shadow side of these faraway planets, partly because they're also moving very slowly, and partly because they are moving slowly, they tend to, to be different than fast-moving planets like Mercury, Venus, and Mars. And generally, in astrology charts, we can control, we have a greater control as individuals, depending on our knowledge and our intuition and how we evolve in a lifetime, that the, the positions of the Sun and the Moon and Mercury, Venus, and Mars, and hopefully the asteroids, we can control those. We can, In other words, we can utilize them for the highest good. Whereas it's harder to control the faraway planets because they're moving more slowly. I'm not saying that people can't control at all Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, but they're harder to control because their orbital periods are often, like Neptune takes 164 years, Pluto takes 247 years, Eris takes 566 years or so, and actually Sedna can, is, is a crazy orbit. It can go as far away as 11,000 years in its orbit. It's just not in that position at this point because it's approaching its perihelion in a few decades, so it's closer, and that's why we found it. At any rate, to um, read a couple of... You're going to see these charts for Jupiter, Pluto, 1347. You're going to see Sun, Eris, research on the plague from now, April 13. So now you know what those charts are all about. So let me read a couple of things here because this is pretty astounding. 1347 in this book, again... Um, which is called the People's Chronology. So I got I just lost my place here, so I'm going to have to go and find it again. Uh, page 130, 129. The Black Plague, the Black Death reaches Cyprus once it will spread to Florence and find thousands of victims weakened and made vulnerable by famine. So that's the first entry in this People's Chronology in 1347. Then um, let's go to 1348 in the beginning of this uh, mention here in the same book. At, right at the beginning of 1348, the Black Death that will devastate Europe reaches Florence in April of 1348. Now remember, I'm using a chart for Jupiter conjunct Pluto in the spring of 1347 um, as a kind of launching pad, but the other years, there could be other charts. If you're an investigator, you want to go to other charts and other time periods, I might do this myself. Beginning of 1348, the Black Death that will devastate Europe reaches Florence in April and spreads to France and England, where it arrives in July or August, although London is spared until November. Now, think about that. You know, everybody's concerned about the next wave because we do not have a vaccine, because um, we don't have antibodies for this. It's different than the common cold. It's different from um, SARS and MERS and these other coronaviruses. We don't have antibodies. That's why this was called a new coronavirus. That's part of the problem. We, we may have had one or more flus in our life, maybe several. We, many people have uh, get a cold. They're all part of this group. This is new, and we don't have antibodies for it. And originally, part of the name was SARS 
uh, coronavirus because SARS was connecting to the respiratory problem. This comes went, went on 17 years ago from China as well. And whether it was created in a lab or not created in a lab, whether it was from the wet markets and the, the wild animals there, which is more probable, the point is it was let loose. And this is another subject we'll talk about um, in the near future, not tonight. Um, but let me go through more of these in 1349. The Black Death kills from one third to one half the population of England which calls a truce and hostilities with plague-stricken France. Again, we were almost at war with Iran, and that would have been a hot war, a military war, a horrific kind of a thing. Um, this has been um, considered as a possibility for many, many years. Well, thank God we didn't have that, but instead we have this war. And while that, war, while that initial, uh, in the beginning of January, was happening between our administration and Iran, at the same time, this was coming out from China. And Tehran has been terribly affected. All of Iran has been affected. And there are reasons, again, why each country has had its infections, because they weren't prepared or they weren't social distancing. Or people came back, as I shared before, several times in the other podcasts from the Chinese Lunar New Year, which was January 24th. And we know that the Wuhan officials uh, shut down their province, leaving so many millions out of their pro uh, out of that province and the Hubei province, they couldn't come back until just recently. So you had people on lockdown in a very extreme way from the Communist Party were able to do a lot of um, things that we can't do in this country of forcing people to stay in their houses and taking temperature checks and preventing people from going on the streets because they're an authoritarian system. But what people forget is that the Lunar New Year is not like in the United States where somebody goes to a Chinese restaurant for one night and their local restaurant, ah, here's the, here's the pineapple, here's, here's dessert, or we're going to give you a little special thing. It's 15 days of festivals. I've shared this before. And so people from all over the world went back to China and Taiwan and to Hong Kong, and they were traveling back and forth all over the place. And uh, apparently um, last night, on Richard Engel, it was two Chinese tourists who came directly from Wuhan um, back in late January into Milan, into Lombardy, that province. And that's what started. They were both infected and positive and they didn't know. And that's part of the whole super spreader problem. But all kinds of plane flights, even though the president of the United States says he blocked China uh, on January 30th, 31st. But we know that hundreds of thousands of other people came through he might have blocked the Chinese people from coming, but not the, the Chinese American people from coming home. They're still Americans who have Chinese ancestry. And we know also that it was not until he spoke at the Oval Office on March 11th, um, where he, he said suddenly, and I shared this before, okay, we're going to block all the Europeans from coming. But that made the Americans who were in Europe flee and come home three days later. That led to the thousands of people, as I shared previously, at O'Hare Airport. And then they went everywhere. And then Chicago has gone into a terrible downturn. You have not heard the President of the United States ever talk about these things. The Chinese Lunar New Year. Um, and look, he's right about certain things like who the World Health Organization has been partial to China, to the People's Republic of China. They don't recognize Taiwan. There are a lot of double standards, but our own CDC failed miserably with all the tests. Now, we 
we're never going to hear from the president, the vice president, or any of the administration. We will get the, um, the I don't know what you want to call it, um, the smokescreen. So let's, I don't want to use a derogatory word beyond that, but um, we're going to get the story of the world is written by the victors, the people who win battles and who have the most power and manipulation to say this is the way it was and this is the way the history is. And so we're, we're seeing a rewriting of history. And some people have said that right now. That's what we're seeing, a rewriting of history, unfortunately, of what happened and when it happened. And then after 1349, um, in 1350, another entry in the book, The Black Death Reaches Scotland and Wales. That was 1350. So it, again, there's less people in the world, but but the pandemic keeps going on, and that's part of the problem. And then it, it, it reappears in other places and keeps going on. Oh, here's one from 1370, uh, 1371. The Black Death reappears in England, but the outbreak is milder than in 1361. So 1361, which I skipped over. In 1361, the Black Death strikes again in England, but less severely than in 1349 and rages also in France, Poland, and elsewhere, especially among young children. And then it says, go to 1371, uh, 1371. And then it says, go to 1382. The book is pretty amazing in terms of, and then the symbol is the caduceus. So that's why you, you can look it up and see 1382. The Black Death sweeps Europe in a weaker epidemic than that of more than 30 years ago. It will take an especially heavy toll in Ireland in the next few years. And by the end of the century, it will have killed an estimated 75 million people, leaving some areas completely depopulated. And then it says, go to 1403. Do you see what I'm saying? What happened in, thir in 1343, there were, two Uranus, uh, there were three Uranus-Pluto conjunctions in Aries. That's where... Um, Jupiter and Pluto then met very close to that point in 1347, which was kind of the year that the, the Black Plague took hold for the main three years. But then it kept coming back. It kept coming back. And of course, in those days, they didn't have uh, they didn't have the right medicine. They didn't know what was going on. People were fleeing it. They were spreading it because they were trying to get away from one area or another. They didn't understand medicine. So, of course, we've advanced a whole lot. But then in 1403, the Doge of Venice imposes the world's first quarantine as a safeguard against the Black Death. All who wish to enter the city, this is Venice, all who went, uh, wish to enter the city must wait, and the waiting time will be standardized at 40 days in 1485. Well, last night, this is interesting because the word quarantine, as Richard Engel said, means 40. It comes from the Italian meaning 40. And it's interesting to me, I thought of this, it, there are so many parts of, um, I happened to watch The Ten Commandments, which was on ABC. Um, it was a little over a week ago. It just I just watched part of it. It was very beautifully done in color. But of course, you have the 40 years of Moses and the Israelites wandering the desert after leaving the Pharaoh and uh, gaining their freedom. And then in the story of Jesus, as the Jesus and of the Christ principle and the Christ um, Messiah energy of 2,000 years ago in Israel, in Jerusalem, Palestine, you have the 40 days of wandering when he's tested by the devil, uh, 40 days in the wilderness. And I thought also it was interesting to hear the 40 days and the word quarantine, 
because quarantines don't always work. They're more of an extreme version. They're not necessarily always going to work, and, and they're, we now need to find the, the contacts of somebody who might be a super spreader and look for those contacts and things like that. And again, what we have is social distancing. Yes, that's part of quarantining. But in our culture, you still have to have the, the food, supply lines, certain necessities, the essential workers, and the whole situation with hospitals and medicine is completely different than it was, of course, in the 13 and the 1400s. But it is interesting. The other thing I thought of is that in the Bible story, Jesus is, is on Good Friday. I, I always wonder why it's called Good Friday in a way. I mean, maybe that's a euphemism. When, when, Christ, when Jesus is crucified, usually they talk about three o'clock, he dies, and then the skies open up, um, and he's taken down from the cross, and he's put in the sepulcher. And then I figured if he rose on at 7 a.m., if he used about a 7 a.m. time on Easter Sunday, that's 40 hours from 3 p.m. on Friday. It was just a thought. The number 40 is very powerful. And in astrology also, one-ninth of the circle, the novile, is 40 degrees of the zodiac. This is part of what we call the minor aspects, and it's used a lot in India with what's called the Navamsa chart and people getting married and so on. But it's part of, there are different minor aspects, what are called the septile aspect of one-seventh of the circle, which is approximately 51 degrees and 26 minutes. It's an odd one because it's not an even number. Um, there's also what we call biceptiles and triceptiles and all these other minor aspects. In the cosmic calendar, if you subscribe to that, uh, which again, you can read more about on the website, which used to be at the center of Welcome to Planet Earth magazine, which I've been doing for 39 years, and I've been trying to tout to everybody, even though I've not, never liked marketing and um, advertising, it's still a very important um, concept. But I use quintiles, which are one-fifth of the circle, 72 degrees, when planets are 72 degrees apart. Also, biquintiles, 144 degrees. I don't usually talk about those. But in the cosmic calendar, if planets are major planets or asteroids and Chiron are in a quintile, I will report it because it's a very mentally stimulating aspect, one-fifth of the zodiacal circle. So um, let's see where we're at with time here because um, I want to keep going. I know this is going to be a long one, but while I still have the energy, there, there's definitely a big thing, a pile uh, of post-it notes because I definitely want to share those in a moment. But here's one of the ones, um, because this is an important chart. I'm only going to give one of these. This is Mars conjunct Eris on August 17. This was research I did several days ago. Again, I've had a lot of insights. I call them revelations. They're part of my research. It's part of my work in mundane astrology and now with reporting this, these series on the coronavirus. So let me put it this way. Um, my main teacher, Dane Rudyard, explained in one of his books about an involutionary wave and an evolutionary wave of planets. If you take the sun and you understand just any picture of the solar system, sun, then Mercury, then Venus, then Earth, Mars, the asteroids, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. He described in a really fascinating one of his books about an involutionary wave of energy starts at the sun and goes out as a wave where each planet in each orbit represents a different kind of dynamic of a kind of 
involution of solar life force into all of our lives and our path of evolution. And then it comes back out of Pluto, Pluto, Neptune, Uranus, it reverses itself, uh, Saturn. He didn't, he, he wasn't alive when Chiron, so he wasn't, well, he was alive for a few years. He, he died in 1985 um, at 90, I'm pretty sure, um, 1895 to 1985, he lived 90 years. Chiron had just been discovered. Um, he knew about the asteroids, but he, he, he had already formulated so many different principles that he was reluctant to start working with those and as a much older person to start. I mean, in those days, things were different. We didn't have online. Astrology had to be done with what we call ephemerides and table of houses and using logarithms. It was a whole different kind of astrology. There were no computers. There were no software. And now it's a lot easier to just throw in an asteroid or throw in... Uh, Sedna, whatever, there's there's all these different programs and you select what you want based on what you're interested in, do the kind of research and have people, all the different astrologers with websites and Twitters and YouTube and everywhere where everybody is doing whatever they're doing. So it's a lot easier, but he, he then had this concept of this wave, an evolutionary wave. So the point is Mercury functions on an involutionary level and an evolutionary level. Same thing with Venus, same thing with the Earth. He actually uses the Earth in the system, the same thing with the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. But what I've done is what I realize what happens is, and I can't get it, this could be a whole series of podcasts. When you when an outer planet like Pluto but or Neptune or Uranus, when it, when it makes a configuration with, say, Saturn, which is closer to the Earth than, than the outer planet, or Jupiter, which is even closer, or an asteroid, or Chiron, and then gets to Mars, and then gets to the Moon. Um, when outer planets form configurations, in this case, which I'll share, Mars and Eris, that represents a more extreme... Remember I bring up the idea of war with Eris because of that goddess having to be a catalyst with the Trojan War, which I won't get into all of it, but you can read the mythology of Eris as the sister of Mars. And what happened with the Trojan War. But but the point is, I suddenly did this research. I don't know exactly at this point. I have my notes here. I'm reading um, where I got the ideas for all of this. Uh, but at any rate, Mars and Eris will form. I did a couple hours of research on this. Of, oh, was, I have the date here, March 30th, just so you know when I did this research. And I have three charts for Mars conjunct Eris. The first one is on August 17, and I'll mention the, about that in a moment. The next one will be on October 4th, and the last one will be on December 22nd. Now, just think about what I've shared so far. I, I shared a while ago in this podcast that Ceres, the largest asteroid that connects up to food and to agriculture and to labor, and which is such a big deal now with we're, what's happening with our farm workers, what's happening with our food, how do we get our food, is it tainted or not? Apparently tonight, another thing happened in South Dakota, where 200 plus people, it might have been even more, in um, at a pork, uh, at a slaughterhouse, have come down with a positive for coronavirus. This is in South Dakota. But apparently, and it was on Rachel Maddow and on other things, and maybe it'll make more of the news tomorrow. By the way, just so you know, this tonight's podcast, which is long, when I'm... <laughs> In a couple of hours, the sun is going to square Pluto. So t Tuesday, the 14th, we're, we're approaching the last quarter moon, which is a time of crisis, according to Rudyard. Now, it's small crisis or large crisis, 
or medium crisis, but it also means when the sun and moon are square, hopefully that work can be done in order to avoid crisis. Plus tomorrow, Venus and Vesta, which I mentioned several times, they're close together in Gemini. And I just wrote an article that they will come back uh, two more times after tomorrow, April 14th. So they're going to be meeting um, in May, and then they're going to meet in September, Venus and Vesta. And that that's a whole other uh, reality. You can read, it's an, ast it's an Astro Flash story in the Earth Aquarius News section. But tomorrow is an enormously significant day. Sun square Pluto, this is again April 14th, and I'll be amazed to see what kind of news comes out partly about the, the slaughterhouse that where 200 plus people have uh, come out positive. The governor apparently of South Dakota is not on top of this yet, maybe. I think it's a woman. Hopefully she will be because South Dakota has been one of those areas where there has not been a big outbreak. Um, moon is conjunct Pluto tomorrow afternoon, uh, West Coast time, early evening, when the press conference is happening in Washington and the moon is also with Jupiter. So I've just shared with you a Jupiter-Pluto conjunction from March in 1347 that is connected to Uranus-Pluto conjunctions from several years before, showing that the 1340s were an incredibly powerful time in Europe and those waves came back. And now we're talking the same thing. We just had Uranus and Pluto squaring each other from Aries to Capricorn from 2012 to 2016. Now we're having Jupiter conjunct Pluto. And tomorrow the moon is with Pluto and Jupiter and Mercury is conjunct Chiron and Venus is conjunct Vesta. We've got the last quarter moon. The moon is with Pallas Athena tomorrow night. Pallas Athena, as reported, aside from knowledge, and wisdom and intelligence and justice has a lot to do with the immune system. I've shared that before from Eleanor Bach's work. And we're having the sun squaring Pluto. And then the next day, the 15th of April, the Ides of April, the sun squares Jupiter. And there are more intense aspects on that day. So we keep having this intensity. But right now, as I'm doing this, uh, I mentioned that we're in a dis uh, disseminating moon tonight, moon 99 degrees from the sun. Well, that's exactly the the relationship of the sun and moon when I'm born, exactly 99 degrees. I've mentioned it before, and I'm not trying to say I was Albert Einstein in another life, but the weird thing is, is I study Albert Einstein a lot. My son is in Pisces and moon in Sagittarius. He had the same sun-moon combination, and oddly, his sun-moon, he was born um, March of 1879 on March 14th, which we now call Pi Day, which is interesting. March 14th is 314, like 3.1415 for Pi. And I believe it was, um, well, at any rate, um, he was born with the sun and moon, not just in the same sun moon when I'm born, which when I found that out years ago, I resonated with that and studied a lot about his life. Very fascinating because he was also involved with nuclear energy so much. And aside from my research on President Kennedy's assassination, the other project, which is actually a bigger project in terms of history, was nuclear energy. And some of that information is in uh, on my research on the new, what's called the nuclear axis. And eventually I'll read from my magazine articles in a multi-part series about all of that. That started in 1982 when Welcome to Planet Earth was actually a newsletter out of Amherst, Massachusetts and Middleton, Wisconsin near Madison which is when it all began before it became a newspaper and a magazine, Welcome Planet Earth. 
I did all this research on the nuclear axis. And so some of the work of Albert Einstein came up then. I started studying more about his chart and other people involved with nuclear energy and physics and so on. So, um, but Albert Einstein's sun moon arc is 99 degrees. That's the same that I have in my chart. So the number 99 and the, the number nine, I just mentioned that um, the 40 days and the 40 hours perhaps between Jesus dying on the cross and when he was when he came out of that and was um, his the Easter rebirth coming out of the tomb and appearing to Mary Magdalene and all of that on on Easter the idea of resurrection and the rebirth of the Christ principle rather than the crucifixion that is where we're going in the age of Aquarius the age of Pisces of the last 2,000 years has been more on the crucifixion, the pain, the suffering, all these different, this is a whole other subject of what's happened in the world over 2000 years, the crusades, uh, the different battles of, in idealism and fanaticism, and hopefully moving more to the era of sisterhood and brotherhood and fellowship and group projects and team activities and more of working together. It is part of the higher meaning of these pandemics when we go off course as human beings around the planet, when we keep fighting these old ideologies, communism versus capitalism, imperialism, colonialism down the line, and tinkering around with with methods and things, whether it's with animals, with laboratories of trying to innovate and stumbling upon something and letting loose different kinds of virulent forces, or again, coming from the animal kingdom because of the past problems between humans and animals that goes way back thousands of years, if not, I mean, millions of years to the history of the whole planet. And you can read up on some of that about Atlantis and Lemuria and different kinds of uh, experimentation of different epochs in history, and particularly the Edgar Cayce teachings. There's a lot on that, as well as the anthroposophical teachings of Rudolf Steiner and many other people who go back hundreds of thousands and millions of years to the history of the earth and the animal kingdom and the human kingdom and the vegetable plant kingdom and the mineral kingdom. And again, in the Alice Bailey books and Tibetan Master DK books, particularly a treatise on cosmic fire and some of the other books, there's extraordinary information on other things I'm bringing to, uh, to your attention now. So here's the problem in a nutshell. Uh, you're going to see one of these charts, but I'm not going to do all of them at the moment, but this will be another podcast I will do and focus on and get this. So, the other day, this is now on March 30th, I do this and I and I work pretty hard to get the exact time of Mars conjunct Eris because you got to do a lot of refinements with software. You can't just ask the software. It just doesn't, you can't say when does Mars and Eris come together? It doesn't work like that. There's no series. You got to kind of go day by day and try and figure it out. So I got a noon chart for Washington, D.C. and it's at 24 degrees. It's, it's interesting because the chart itself that you'll see, the sun, the Mars and Aries are conjunct. They're actually trying, which is a favorable link, to the sun and Mercury at the top of the chart. But what's interesting is they fall in the sixth house using Washington, D.C. Um, and it's a fairly exact time of the day. And we know that the sixth house is a house of health or illness. We also see that Juno will almost be back to its uh, birth position in the United States chart which is 20 plus of Libra. And in this chart for Mars conjunct Eris, which is I'm labeling Mars conjunct Eris number one, it's the first of three. Juno is opposite in the 12th house of hospitals, nearly back to where, where it was when the United States came into being. And then we see Scorpio rising. 
you'll see a bunch of planets like Jupiter, Pluto, Saturn, and Pallas all in the third house of communication and correspondence. You'll see the moon almost exactly overhead at six of Leo, which is the north node, the fate destiny point in the United States birth chart. So this is, a, this is an omen. And what was really frightening to me about it, quite frankly, was I did this. And then it turned out that the Democratic Party, which was supposed to meet in Milwaukee in July, changed the date for later because they're still trying to figure out, are we going to all go? Are we going to do this by Zoom? Where they have to change their whole approach. They can't just do it by remote. They have to create different laws and vote on it. And then they choose to start on August 17, the exact date of the Mars Eris conjunction, the first of three. And I thought, this is why I'm doing this. So I have been ahead of the curve and I, I'm not touting my own abilities. I'm going through my own cycles. And that's why there's so much I'm trying to do here. And I've got a few more things before we're done tonight, which is why this is going to be another three hour. We're, we're, we're not there yet. So we're not nearly as long as the last one. So look at this chart and then know that there's going to be another one another uh, Mars, here's why, Mars is going to go retrograde in Aries and spend 80 days retrograde. Um, we're, we're all, we're actually in a secondary progress chart for the United States that started in 2006. And years ago, that's 14 years ago, actually before 14 years ago, in 2004, 2005, I was warning through Earth Aquarius News which was then in existence, the previous website, or there was actually two previous websites. And I was sending a newsletter out to the different subscribers saying, beware, Mars in the United States, secondary progress chart is going to make a station. And the station happened in 2006. It had never happened the whole history of the United States in secondary progressions. And the degree position is 18 plus of Libra, which our full moon, the Shambhala full moon that we just had a couple of days ago, hit that point, the sun at 18 plus of Aries and the moon at 18 plus of Libra, that's in the global hotspot section. And in the global hotspot section of this last full moon, um, which, which just occurred, I pointed out, this occurred on the night of um, April 7th. I, I wrote in this, a couple of paragraphs in there that the 18 plus of Libra moon position at the Shambhala full moon of Aries and Libra is exactly the stationary progressed stopping point from Mars in our chart, secondary progressed chart. And all of those first 17 podcasts that I did last year, which related more to the Mueller report and national intelligence and justice, um, I shared the exactitude of the United States secondary progressed sun at 15 of Pisces with Pallas Athena at 15 of Pisces. It had never happened in our history. It won't happen again uh, for 400 plus years. And then I also explained the Sedna that the progressed United States sun and the progressed and the natal Sedna came into a conjunction. That was in another previous podcast not so long ago, uh, also in the Mark Lerner astrology radio astroscope section on uh, Great Bear Enterprises in that section. And I discussed the fact that that's why our secondary progress chart and that you should all be learning about your, your progressions, which is why I've been recommending Skylog, which is transits and progressions, including secondary progressions. You can get that for six months or a year or life progressions, uh, which is by someone else. And she is, I don't remember her name, but um, you can see samples and they're in the astrology shop.
And as long as you have your month, day, and year and a fairly accurate birth time, and hopefully exact, but as close as you get in city, state, and country, by getting a life progressions report, that's all about now and the near future. And the Skylog, which is a companion to what's called the Sky Within Natal Report, which is designed by Stephen Forrest, the Skylog runs for six months or 12 months, includes your major transits in three main sections called the invitation, the means, and the details, but then goes into your secondary progressions. And if they're major progressions, you'll see them and with interpretations. So um, here's what's going to happen. These conjunctions are at 25 degrees. The first two are 25 of Aries on August 17 and October 4th. And Mars is going to be in a retrograde cycle at that second one. And the election which we hope to have without a whole lot of craziness, although that's another topic for another time about what's going to happen with the election and inauguration. So um, we'll take a look at that. That's a whole separate situation uh, of concern. But then they'll come together, Mars and Eris, on December 22nd at 24 of Aries. Now, this is important. So I will give those charts out at another point, for sure, one way or another. The October 4th chart for Washington, D.C., and December 22nd. Right now, I just want everybody to know that we're having three Mars conjunctions to Eris. And the danger is that Eris is the sister of Mars. She was relegated. She's not on Mount Olympus. She's kind of what we might call the dark or invisible Eris sister. She causes her one of the, the, the claim to fame or to infamy is that she throws this apple in to, um, to this w wedding, which is going to create the Trojan War. And it makes goddesses fight with one another and makes a, a, a wrong decision by Paris of Troy um, and all kinds of terrible things happen, and we get this historical thing of the, the war between Greece and Troy. Um, at any rate, the last one is at 24 of Aries, and the reason I'm bringing this up, I was just saying the last series return, series having to do with food and agriculture and labor and all these difficulties, right now we're, we're being thankful, well, we can still go shopping, we can wear a mask, you can do it carefully, you can get somebody to help deliver it, we're very thankful, but we don't know what's going to happen with the farm workers. And particularly as the weather warms up, if we start as the president wants and as governors may decide to do, depending on which states, to start bringing people back, you get one or two super spreaders here and there. People start going to church. People go to work. Um, I, I don't think it's at all safe for children to go to school at all for various reasons. Kids, um, one of the, the governors, DeSantos, has said some things that I think are outlandish. Recently, he said, well, we might decide to allow children to go to school. And he made a comment saying, well, because children basically are not affected by this. That's not true at all. And the problem, what he doesn't think about is children come from homes. Those homes have parents or one parent or grandparents. And you start mingling and bringing back children into schools at whatever point, because you think that somehow the death rates have gone down and the hospitals are less crowded and it's summertime and you start thinking, you know, even people starting to think about Major League Baseball and sports happening and and children going back to school. Well, it's not that they just arrive there. You're going to have them on the school buses or is the parent going to walk them? Is everybody going to wear a mask? How, are they going to are the kids going to be six feet apart in the school? What about the teachers? What about delivery people? The 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 idea of doing it to me, getting back to um, to Mr. Spock, as I said, to finish the Einstein connection, Einstein was born with Mercury conjunct Saturn. And then I realized, I don't have his chart in front of me. I think he has Chiron there as well. He has something else 
I, I don't want to say for sure it's Chiron, but he also has the part of fortune. And it's not that I've looked at his chart and studied it meticulously. I have studied it. But the big thing for, for me of his mathematical genius and E equals MC squared and all of his other uh, amazing discoveries is, is he has Mercury conjunct Saturn. And in, in my own birth chart, Mercury and Saturn, their midpoint is the moon. And I don't have Mercury and Saturn in that kind of relationship like Einstein had, but I love mathematics. And when you study midpoints, like if you read, and I heartily recommend Michael Moncasey's book, if you, um, I don't know, it may be Llewellyn, maybe another publisher, maybe, actually, I think it's ACS Publications, which I touted before. Uh, I believe they're the publishers, so I don't want to say the wrong thing. But Michael Muncasey, M-U-N-K-A-S-E-Y, first name Michael. Uh, I met him many times. He did a phenomenal amount of work. Midpoints go back to Germany, Alfred Witt. There's a whole group of German astrologers before World War II, not related to to the Nazis, you know, doing incredible work. Um, and we have to be grateful for the hundred years, almost a hundred years of midpoint analysis. And it has a whole incredible history. And fortunately I had a great teacher, Charles Emerson, passed away a long time ago in New York City when I first got into astrology in 1972, 73. And that's where I became familiar with that. And at any rate, the Michael Moncasey book I know is a terrific book. There are many others I mean, there are some others, but that is the main one I know of for sure. So one more thing, the December 22nd date, we know that Ceres has three returns in Pisces, and the last one is December 20th. That's one day before the great Jupiter-Saturn conjunction, which I was mentioning last year, and I mentioned on Coast to Coast Radio eight years ago. Uh, was it eight years ago? Yeah, when I was um, the, the end of the Mayan calendar. And the focus was on December 21 of 2012. And I was on the show and George Nuri, the host, asked me at the end, Mark, is there anything you want to say at the end? And I said, guess what, George and everybody, eight years from now, meaning 2020, December 21, the same date in 2012 when the Mayan calendar was supposed to end and all of our lives were going to be you know, turned upside down. I said, wait until we get eight years from now. Jupiter and Saturn are going to enter Aquarius. It's going to start 180 years approximately of Jupiter and Saturn in air signs, Aquarius, Gemini, and Libra, instead of the Earth contingent that has been in existence since 1841. Now, just think about this. What is the problem? What is this problem um, with the pandemic? It's the respiration. It's pneumonia. It's the vulnerability of people with their lungs. I brought up earlier about... Um, D.H. Lawrence being born in the area of the coal mines um, in England, in the Midlands, and having a lifelong issue. Um, I believe, if I remember, he, he, one of his brothers, either younger or older, died in his childhood from all of that. And for his whole life, D.H. Lawrence would try and say, it's not the lungs, it's, it's the bronchioles. He, even though it, periodically you would have these bouts of spitting up blood or having these problems. And of course, they didn't have the same kind of medicine that they would have now. Um, and again, when you're when you're born in those areas, I mean, um, the, the lung disease of miners in the United States and people who work the mines all over the world, respiratory uh, diseases and um, uh, cancer of the lungs and things like that are just extraordinary things. So now that we have air, we just had Mars conjunct Saturn at zero of Aquarius on May 17th, Pallas Athena stops at zero of Aquarius, and Pallas Athena does connect up to the immune system. 
And then we're going to have Jupiter conjunct Saturn at zero Aquarius, starting 180 years of Jupiter and Saturn every 20 years being in air signs. I didn't want, I wanted to share about it this year, but I wanted to share about it more favorably. And eight years ago, when I mentioned it on Coast to Coast, I was thinking of it as, oh, you know, this is going to be age of sisterhood and brotherhood and fellowship and Aquarius and the air signs. And the air signs have a lot to do with online world and things like the cryptocurrencies, reevaluation of the dollar and of currencies and of team teamwork and different kinds of things with virtual reality and electronics. It just seemed like a fantastic super age. But one thing we forgot are pandemics and respiratory illnesses and not being prepared. And not being prepared means not reading the material. Uh, the air signs of Aquarius, Libra, and Gemini. And remember, our, our president and vice president are sun sign Gemini. I've said before, Gemini is a great sign like any other. But every sun sign, every sign can be uh, shadowy. It doesn't have to be uh, terrific. Uh, George Norrie is a sun sign Gemini. I mean, he's, he's doing phenomenal work on coast to coast. Extraordinary. I mean, can't say enough about um, my connection with George and being thankful for all you know, just Art Bell. He also passed recently the first host. He never allowed astrologers on. Um, I, I mentioned in another podcast, even though I knew that I wrote to him and um he was kind enough, Art Bell, to give me his birth information. And one of the issues of Welcome to Planet Earth, I reported this story that I'm saying now. And I've never shared more about George and want to keep some of that private. But um, he and I have never met, but we've been, we've met on the on the show. And again, you can become a Coast Insider for only a small amount, like six, six or seven dollars and be access podcast. You get podcasts if you have that ability on your iPhone or your Android or your iPad or computer. Um, in case I'm on again, that's that would be great. I don't I never know exactly when I'm gonna be on, but I've been fortunate to be on maybe twenty five times and there's so many other great people, metaphysicians and researchers in all fields, including politics, including ecology and the environment and space travel and UFOs and even Bigfoot and other things. But What's weird or what's concerning me, and there are many other things that concern me about the next inauguration time and different new moons and full moons and eclipses, I will be reporting more about that as time goes on. Uh, I'm not going to forget about those. But we see December 20th, Ceres making its third return. So the issue about food and agriculture, uh, the workers, migrant workers, grocery clerks and all of that. So this is not going away. And we're still going to have these other dates that I mentioned starting May 28th um, that Ceres will make its first return in the United States chart, which does happen every four years. So December 20th is the last of these Ceres returns. December 21, we get the big Jupiter-Saturn conjunction. They're the two largest planets in the solar system. It launches a whole period of time of pretty much 180 years. That's what these cycles are, 180 years. Think about that into the 22nd century. And then the next day, at 7 a.m., December 22nd, the third Mars-Eris conjunction at um, 24 degrees of Aries. And let me grab something for a moment. And what I'm grabbing is the uh, Dane Rudyard, uh, I've mentioned this before, these symbols um, for 24, 25 of Aries, the first two Mars-Eris conjunctions, which will be August 17 and October 4th. And in the October 4th one, Mars is retrograde. So 
at the first one, 25 varies, the possibility for man or woman, let's say the possibility for man to gain experience of two levels of being, the keynote is the revelation of new potentialities. Um, it's a very interesting symbol um, where Rudra says, Being op be open, be able and willing to shape your translucent mind in the form revealing spiritual fulfillment and you will be able to experience life and power on inner as well as outer planes. He says the implied message is one of faith, puts that in italics. This is again the mars Eris conjunction of, of um, symbol from an astrological mandala, his reinterpretation of Mark, Dr. Mark uh, Edmund Jones's Sabian Symbols. So this has been an extraordinary book for so many peoples because it brings up these imagery. Images, He says, again, the implied message is one of faith. Man can only truly experience what he deeply believes he can experience. But he says here, it announces the possibility of a new step in evolution, but it is still only a possibility, a promise. The individual is truly on probation, and he has those in capitals. And when he says individual, I, f I feel he means, in this case, humanity. So I marked when I did this, this is only, what, 14 days ago, March 30th, when I did this research, I turned, um, it was all about, um, there were other things that were going on that day. Uh, keep in mind, one of the other things is Mars has a lot to do with the bloodstream, with blood circulation, with the arterial circulation of the body, whereas the Venus, uh, the veins have to do with Venus. Mars has to do with temperature. It has to do with inflammation. I mean, in terms of medical astrology. So that's one of my concerns. You know, one of the things is the Red Cross of, of, of not so many people are going to be contributing blood as they did. Then there's the whole issue of antibodies, the, what's called the convalescent plasma, which came out of 100 years ago with the Spanish influenza. So this is not a new thing. But in order to get convalescent plasma, you have to have people going in. And I heard the other day, it might be 45 minutes, I think it was on Richard Engel again. On pandemic last night, it's not as if you just go in and, hey, here's here's some plasma. And again, this is more of to determine by experts whether that's going to help. It's not that everybody can go who has gone through, let's say they've tested positive for the coronavirus, but and they don't die and they recover, then they have antibodies. That's where the convalescent plasma can come in. But this means going to a doctor or going to a place and who, 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 a lot of people don't want to give blood or they're, you know, the whole thing of HIV is not just through gay people, of course. People thought of that in the 80s and people were condemned for that. And then we realized uh, blood transfusions and all kinds of things of how people could get HIV and different things um, with all of these different situations. And that's why even in coming up with the vaccine, everybody's saying, well, once we have a vaccine, think of all the people who will never want to get a vaccine. They won't trust um, doctors. People don't, not everyone gets the flu vaccine um, or gets the flu shot. I didn't get one. Um, a lot of people don't believe necessarily that the vaccine for the regular flu, after all, there's so many different strains of flu. And even now with this particular coronavirus, new coronavirus, they're talking about mutation, that there might be one strain or another. And what I was just reading from the 1340s and 1350s and 60s and 70s and on into the early part of the 15th century, when this would keep coming back, we don't know exactly unless there are some books. I saw a big thick one being mentioned, uh, Epidemics Over the Centuries or something it looked like about a 500 page book by somebody who's an epidemiologist who's written about this. Now he would know more 
about, even though they didn't have the same kind of medicine, they didn't have the same research, what was coming back to Florence and to London and Germany and France in these other time periods? Why, why did it go to Scotland and Wales? Why did it go to different places? Why did it start in Cyprus in the summer of um, the first main area in 1347? Did it come originally from China? I have all these kind of things that do indicate that that's where they came from. Then we have all these other things, malaria, yellow fever, cholera, and, and uh, polio and tuberculosis. And, and when we were growing up getting measles, we would get measles, we would get mumps, we would get chickenpox, we would get that, and we'd all pass it along to one another and we'd all stay home from school and then we had it. We didn't get shots for, to prevent chickenpox. We didn't get shots to prevent measles or mumps. We got it and we were fortunate to recover because that was a different kind of an illness. With this, you, you, you don't want to pass it along. Um, it's too dangerous, depending on heart conditions and so on. This is the other thing of the president and the vice president, people saying, how is it possible that minorities, you know, like why are their statistics so high? Do you not know anything about sociology, about poor people and poor communities and not going to doctors and not having the same access that rich people have? One of the big things that started happening in New York where the wealthier people started going to yachts and going to country homes. And that's why I think I reported the last time, or maybe in the one hour introduction to medical astrology in that podcast. And this is not fake news that people from New York who were wealthy were fleeing to some of their places in Rhode Island. And then the governor of Rhode Island was trying to track down New Yorkers with New York license plates and getting the police to stop them, to send them back to New York. And then the governor, the governor, governor Cuomo of New York wanted to uh, create a lawsuit or had a, um, a disagreement, a major one with the governor of Rhode Island saying, you don't do that. But those are the kind of things, well, what do you do when people are fleeing? Uh, same thing oddly happened. Well, not oddly, but happened with the bubonic plague, the Black Death. People didn't know they were running away from it, but if they had it, then they would pass along in the next town and then those townspeople would run away because they saw people dying and they'd run to the next town and so on and so forth to try and flee. So that's part of the whole problem. Now, so I just read 25 of Aries. 24 of Aries, which is the conjunction at a slightly different degree, the third one of Mars and Eris together. And th remember, this is the winter solstice, conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, Ceres coming back in the U.S. chart, and now we have Mars conjunct Aries for the third one, 24 of Aries. And this one, again, is mind-blowing. The symbol blown inward by the wind. The wind blown inward. We got air in two different words. The curtains of an open window take the shape of a cornucopia. Keynote, openness to the influence of influx of spiritual energies. And Roger writes, and this is, again, another astounding thing. And remember, there are spiritual reasons for why this is happening. Part of it is the foolishness and wastefulness of humanity, uh, Newton's second law of motion, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, the idea of karma, the things that the, the Trump administration, or let's call it the Trump-Pence and plutocrat administration to be, uh, to extend the energies of, you know, the, the border wall with Mexico, keeping them out, rapists and murderers, um, the whole idea of putting children in cages and all these outrageous things, preventing male uh, vote by mail, gerrymandering, uh, just, you know, whether it's the subpoenas with William Barr and the Justice Department and all the different uh, temporary P 
people in positions of power uh, that the president of the United States will often say things like, I like people who are temporary because, or he selects, when he selected Tillerson for secretary of state, he did it because like civil celebrity apprentice, he said he looks the part. Same thing with a lot of the female journalists who are choosing to be a part of it. It's often somebody who looks more like a beauty queen than somebody who's necessarily um, going to do the job. Remember, he is the person who did the, um, the uh, I forget exactly the name of it, but um, the, comp the uh, women's contest that he had, um, it, that he had at one point in Moscow, um, which is just like we'd have Miss America and he had, I guess it's the Miss World, um, I forget the, I think that's what it was, that he owned and that he um, wanted to have in different places. Anyway, blown inward by the wind, the curtains of an open window take the shape of a cornucopia, openness to the influx of spiritual energies. And Rudyard says, the principle of abundance is brought to a further stage in this rather cryptic symbol. Physical fruition is shown operating at a more subtle and spiritual level. The wind, and then he puts in parenthesis, pneuma, like the beginning of the word pneumonia, pneuma, which really means spirit. The wind blows through the open mind window and brings into the house of personality a promise of more than material potency. Wind blows from a region of high pressure to one of low pressure. As the window curtains are blown inward, the individual consciousness represented by the house is receiving a more concentrated influx of spiritual energies, enabling this consciousness to attend the scope of its awareness and creative expression. And then Rudyard says, uh, the message at this point is that inner growth demands not just an open mind, but one able to provide a container for a spiritual harvest. The cornucopian shape of the window's curtain suggests that the subtler, translucent aspect of the mind, meaning the curtains, has acquired a plastic quality, enabling it to be molded by transpersonal forces. So these are rather extraordinary symbols, very appropriate, depending if you look at it, not just individuals, but you think of air, you think of the lungs, you think of breathing. The fact that he mentions pneuma, the beginning of the word uh, pneumonia, meaning spirit. Uh, what we said earlier about Richard Engel talking about quarantine representing 40, this idea of 40 days, 40 hours, um, um, 40 years in the, in the desert being uh, the novile aspect of one ninth of the circle being 40 degrees of the zodiac and things like that. So these two symbols are rather powerful. So let's see where we're at here. Um, I know we're in the three hour zone. The last time was, was three hours. So, um, let me just grab, I guess what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait on this list of enormous podcasts and I'll do that in the next one with this other extraordinary thing. So let me end on this note, which is I'm bringing up the World Almanac 2020. One of the things that is alarming is we are, in, and I verified this um, watching a show today. I had come up with this yesterday on the 12th on Easter, that the United States, you know, we was at 330 million Americans. Um, that's a lot of people, but the world has 8 billion. So we're, we're approximately 4.25% of the world's population. Now just think about this. We are 4.25% of the world's population. The virus definitely started in China, connected to everything that happened there. You can go through all the things, whether 
came from a you know the 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 wild animals which is the most problem thing or came from a lab or the lab and the wild animals are connected because they were only 300 yards away whatever happened there and the chinese lunar new year and it spread around the globe so we are our americans are 4.25% of the world's population but we have 30% of the cases that are reported and we have 20% of the death rate and this is why again what I said earlier in another podcast, the fact that we have 50 states and now we have the reverse where the, where the president of the United States to say only he can open up everything. He's all powerful. It was an extraordinary thing today at the White House, just extraordinary because the whole Republican conservative political kind of thing against the Democrats was always the Republican conservative answer to welfare, social security, um, and the government, when Democrats are in power, the Republicans are always trying to say, as um, they did under Barack Obama, we can't afford it. You can't, you know, you're going to destroy the deficits and the debt and all of this stuff. And we know, actually, you know who's the king of debt? Donald Trump. He touts it as something great in all of his work with the casinos and with building and everything else. He's a big believer in that. And look what we have now, the trillions of dollars. So it's come to pass because in his heart of hearts and the back of his mind, this is how he's always functioned with all of his work in the whole art of the deal. Everything you may have not, I don't know if you read it, but one of the things early on, and we know now that he didn't really write it, but he had a ghostwriter for all those books. But one of the th thoughts that I had years ago when I thought he was a good guy or I thought he wasn't as bad as as the New York periodicals like the Daily News and the Post and all of these things about his marriages and all these uh, goings on in his life, all these sordid kind of stale, uh, tales, was he, he owed several hundred million dollars in the art of the deal that he describes. And so he goes to a meeting with bankers. This is, again, a paraphrase. He goes to this meeting and they're all wanting to figure out, well, when are you going to pay us? How are you going to do it? You know, let's schedule how you, you know, because you're going to have to go into bankruptcy. And somehow he pulls off this thing of, you're not, I'm not going to go bankrupt and you're not going to make me pay that money. You're going to loan me more money. And here's why you're going to loan me more money. So because he sees himself as kind of a larger than life figure, everything is huge. He's born with Jupiter not moving, Neptune not moving, Chiron not moving, and born in a, uh, a full moon, total lunar eclipse, all these incredible positions and particularly connected to the United States chart. But before that, just in terms of the power of his own chart, he comes up with this kind of thing which nobody anticipates. Like, here's what you're going to do. I owe you, all of you, $300 million. And if you, if you loan me another $600 million to do A, B, and C, here's, here's my plan. So he worked up the whole plan, and they basically, okay, well, fine. So because that all happened many different times, Everything is kind of debt, 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 you know, just sort of one thing, another thing, uh, another kind of a debt. And then, of course, there are certain times his casinos went bankrupt. He had to sell a helicopter or a plane or a yacht or whatever it was, the different things that he'd have to sell reluctantly um, or having to give up, you know, Trump wine or uh, the whole thing about uh, real estate, the, diff the, the, the Trump school to be a, a, a genius in buying houses and things like that. But the, the problem is, is now the United States has 50 states with 50 different types of governments and state legislatures. And so we just saw with Wisconsin, Supreme Courts in different states that were this patchwork 
which is extraordinary when tourists come here and they want to see the cuisine of, you know, Louisiana and the differences of, you know, what's going on in San Francisco and the trolley cars and what's happening in New York City and Chicago and going to different beautiful parks and areas, whether it's Yellowstone or um, Mount Rushmore and all the great places and all the different foods and all the different types of extraordinary differences. This is our our disaster here when when we hear like why can't we do it like south korea we'll look at a map it's small small country size wise we're big country size wise and if you add canada which is suffering and mexico we've got like 450 million or 500 million people and uh, canada has its provinces and there's only 30 to 40 million people but its size is almost like the united states so if things start happening in rural regions of canada it's going to be hard for them, whether food and security and hospitals and ventilators. And the same thing here. Ventilators are being sent from California to New York, Oregon. We just sent um, ventilators to New York in their hour of need. And hopefully the states will, will support one another. But because of the lack of testing, the faulty CDC test, the fact of inaction um, during the month of March in particular and part of February when the government knew what was happening, and they didn't do it, or the president himself said, you know, it's only one person, it's going to go away in the spring, miraculously it'll disappear, not accepting how severe it could be, not looking at the pandemics and not reading everything. We're in this dire situation that we're in. So it's extraordinary to look at these numbers. We should not be in a situation at 4.25% of the world's population. Why should we have 30% of the world's cases? because we were asleep at the wheel. And by letting the virus come in and all these different things, the plane loads of people into O'Hare and not having anything prepared, not having testing. We only have now tested, I think it's 1 million people. Even if it's 3 million people out of 300 million, we're just so far behind. And then there's a question of how valid the tests are. Certainly a vaccine can happen for a very long time. And again, unless we, do, if we do something where it warms up and so they keep talking every day. The curve is flattening here. We're, we're, we're turning a corner. Meanwhile, hundreds more people or thousands of more Americans are dying and they can't see their relatives. Um, the, the, the nurses and the doctors and the emergency people from head to toe are covered. And it's just an extraordinary kind of thing. Now, again, it happened with the, with the Spanish influenza, which is why I presented that chart before. I gave charts out for the World Health Organization, the CDC, several podcasts ago. You can see those. And I commented on those. And then, of course, we have the, the, the granddaddy, so to speak. And there were other pandemics that I might report about um, going back in B.C. and way earlier than um, the Black Death and then after that. But the, those time periods in 1347 to 1349... And a few years before and after, we now are seeing the astrology. Uranus conjunct Pluto in 1343 three times. Jupiter conjunct Pluto and Uranus in 1347 in places that are very much connected to now and what's happened in the last couple of years. So it's not just this year, but it's the Uranus-Pluto squares that we had five times or several times, 2012-2016. And that was during the President Obama administration. But this release of the coronavirus didn't happen until now. But they were dealing with an Ebola outbreak in Africa and trying to prepare the United States. So they were already working on that. And they, they were doing very well in preventing that from happening. 
Um, there's so much more with all of this, and I'm just going to have to leave uh, a whole group of these things. I know what they are, and therefore I know what I have to share in the next podcast, which unfortunately will be another long one. But in that one, I have at least 10 or 12 uh, podcast plans that I will do, but I'm going to share them more with the public. So if you're an, a professional astrologer or you know a professional astrologer and you hear what I'm saying, have them connect up with me um, through the website, through Great Bear Enterprises. You can say, oh, Mark Lerner shared this idea for podcasts. And if, if you have a different, if you have a professional astrologer that you know, share with them the idea. And then we might be able to coordinate uh, research together. And again, so the next podcast will have um, quite a few um, goodwill type of podcast information so that other people can start doing um, a whole bunch of this work. Again, to some extent, I'm very sorry that I've had to share three plus hours. I feel better that I've been able to get out a lot of this material. And there is actually dozens of other sheets of paper and different um, revelatory research um, piles that are sitting on another desk that I never got to the last time and the time before that. And at some point, if there is a lull, I will try and share those, but I know exactly this group of podcasts for the next time. So again, many blessings to all of you, many healing blessing, pl blessings to you and your loved ones, your friends and your family and all of humanity around our planet and to Mother Earth and Mother Nature. So the next time will be podcast 45, and thank you very much for listening. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.